in their ever-present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later. The Homest Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Didi.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham & Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 121. I am Peter. And I am Joey. And uh, everybody, welcome back and uh, fresh start into Babylon's 5, Season 5. Yeah. Now we have to we have to mention here we I did get a new laptop from work, so we are on a new podcasting rig. I'm not sure if we got the settings quite right. Hopefully, everything mm. comes out okay. But I'm, everybody, that's Joey's way of saying I didn't bother to prepare anything <laughs> uh, for this recording. I have no notes. I didn't watch the episodes. <laughs> I was wearing pants. That's what's exciting. I already screwed up once. We were supposed to be watching in the beginning, and I forgot. <laughs> one of our listeners, I think it was, was it Brainy Smurf? Yeah, it was Brainy Smurf. Uh, called me on it. Yeah, I was wrong. I, I forgot that we were supposed to be watching it in sequence at this point. Uh, Pete and I discussed it, and we've decided instead we're going to do it as a movie podcast after series wrap up for Babylon Five. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get to that a couple years from now. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, so that should be fun. I mean, because really, I think they were intended to be standalone movies. Yes. They aren't, um, you know, have you don't have to watch the series no in continuity. order yeah. to understand what's going on. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't have anything we, we don't have any talk pre- about. No, we I, do. I have, we nothing. do have. Uh, we, I, I, I can't even complain about the week, really. You, you did just hear a new musical intro. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's right. The thing I didn't actually hear, <laughs> which was written by uh, Brainy Smurf. Yeah. He kind of put that together. He had told me that he, um, um, that the guitar stuff was him. So they, I think he said that there were like five different guitars that he recorded and then looped, looped them together in in certain places. But the other stuff, and he, I think he said he used a synthesizer okay. uh, to to replicate the sound. But still, it sounded pretty good. It didn't sound like you know seventies Babylon Five music. Yeah, <laughs> a synthesizer from the eighties and seventies. It, it was it was good. I enjoyed it. So thanks very much for that submission, uh, Brainy Smurf. That was nice of you. Yeah. This is kind of the Brainy Smurf podcast. Um, it is kind it? of the Brainy Smurf podcast. <laughs> Uh, but I well, let's do Facebook okay. find of the week. Um, if he wins, then this really does become the brainy. He's not going to win. He's not going to win. No. Okay. Uh, it's going to Fishhead for the second week in a row. Oh yeah. Okay. For which the submission? Hobbit video blog. Yeah, uh, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, those cameras. By the way, I have done some research into those video cameras independently for for other purposes. Those are amazing cameras. Yeah, uh, they cost. I want to say it's something like fifty or sixty thousand dollars for one camera, and well, they don't. They're not actually video cameras. They are still cameras with an incredibly high rate of, of capture, and so it's it's just a super high quality digital still camera 
that is taking 48 pictures a second, as opposed to streaming the video the way a normal digital video camera would. Yeah, all of that's pretty much meaningless to me. <laughs> Didn't understand a word of okay. it. But you sounded really smart saying it. So well, I posted well a lot more detail on the, on the Facebook page. They're they're pretty cool. Yeah, I, I'm impressed with them. I, I I mentioned in my comment on the Facebook page it was that I I really don't care for 3D. Like the idea of going and watching a 3D movie doesn't appeal to me in the slightest. Well, have you done it? Um, I have done 3D, but it's been a very very long time. Okay. Um, and... So you haven't done the new 3D? No. So, my point is, if Peter Jackson's gonna do it, <laughs> I'm in. Okay. Alright? I, I, I guess I drank the Peter Jackson Kool-Aid that he was handing out. Well, you are both named Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you notice in the, uh, in the, the video, though, he's put on some weight again. Yeah, he has. Yeah, and uh, it's really interesting. I think it's the work. I think when he's working, he does not take care of his health. Well, I I thought that he had had the lap band surgery, either the lap band or they had trimmed out his stomach. Okay, I I don't remember. I you know I could be wrong on that, so please don't go up to Peter Jackson and then accuse him of something. <laughs> I I don't know why you would do that anyway. Um, so. I'm looking forward to The Hobbit more and more and more. Yeah, I, it looks like it's going to be good. Just so excited for this. It's going to be fun. <laughs> All right, well, congratulations to Fishhead. This would be his fourth award. Or because we didn't actually send didn't out send the last one, <laughs> we, we can just say, oh, you... <laughs> we'll send him both awards at the same time. But I never even actually went in to look and see whether it's his... Whether second last time was his third. second or third. So... We can't. No, I don't think he would be up at the fifth award, would he? No, I sure hope not, because we don't have a fifth award yet. Yeah, we would have to do some work. Okay. Um, well, congratulations, Fishhead. Uh, all right. Now into Brainy Smurf. Into Brainy Smurf. Yep. Who apparently uh, has a web page now for the Brain Nation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, you briefly mentioned that to me right before we started, so I haven't had a chance to go and take a look at it yet. But I, I mentioned to you, I said, "What have we started here? <laughs> what did we do?" And I said, "What did you do?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for not taking any responsibility for him whatsoever. Uh, but uh, that should be fun to to see. We'll I'll, we'll have to check out uh, what he posts up there. Um, Does his thing there start with cue the music? Yes. Okay, so I think he posted his email. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Well, Joey, but he ha he already has twenty eight page views. I don't know that our podcast website has twenty eight page views. <laughs> oh, he's got other friends. Remember, he, he's outstripped the popularity of the, of the host body already. <laughs> he must be destroyed. <laughs> Uh, okay, so Joey, cue the music. Okay. Now uh, that's, uh, you know, start playing up a little sweet, sweet jams. All right. What's up, Brain Nation? And now for a special collaborative presentation of Joey's Nook of Brainy's Culture of Darkness Corner. <laughs> <laughs> Perspective is another animal. Oh, sorry, by the way, Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Yes. Uh, Perspective is another animal. 12,000 years into the future, with hundreds of quadrillions of people, 
statistics become uh, statistics tend to be more aggregate predictability emerges more clearly than we can currently understand fusing mathematics and psychology the science of psychohistory was discovered by Harry Selden like electricity was discovered by Ben Franklin I borrow that scene of American mythology because Asimov chooses an endless, cl endlessly clever narrative device to tell the tale of Foundation, while covering the tone that this dude, Harry, is a legend from days of yore. Speaking in mythological terms, page one of Foundation is an excerpt from Harry Selden from the 116th edition of Encyclopedia Galactica. Anything that ends in Galactica is cool. <laughs> this very encyclopedia is the initial goal of the protagonist in this novel, preserving knowledge through the Dark Ages. So, can one dude or dudette make a difference? In Foundation, three dudes save the human race over the course of a thousand years. Due to their extensive education, strategic pr uh, prediction capabilities, and their ability to improvise, our three heroes enact their mythological sense of epic acumen through their knowledge, tactical planning skills, and their extemporaneousness. Yep. The, uh, the heroes of this novel are a mathematician, a politician, and an interstellar traitor. Harry Selden, Salvor uh, Hardin, and Hober Mallow. Each man steers their civilization through a 1,000-year dark age. In order to prevent the worst-case scenario of a 30,000-year period of the Dark Ages to unfurl, the heroes each aptly enact inaction and avoid violence at all costs as they react to the insecure and finicky governments and kingdoms within the surrounding periphery at the galaxy's edge. At the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring movie, Bilbo explains to Gandalf that he feels like butter spread over too much toast. This metaphor conveys the Hobbit's beleaguerment while also foreshadowing the decaying effect that the ring will eventually inflict upon Frodo's soul. As Foundation opens, we see Trantor, a ca uh, capital of the universe and the Empire. From the first time, POV... What point of view? Would, would you like to do this? <laughs> I'm just trying to help. I am aware of POV, point of view. You seem to be struggling with the word there. I'm not struggling. <laughs> As Foundation opens, we see Trantor, capital of the universe and the empire, from the first time POV of a country bumpkin, Gal Dornick, future apprentice of Harry Selden. Awestruck, Gal cannot see any dirt remaining on the overdeveloped planet. No horizon, no sky. Only man-made structures. Asimov reveals that the Empire will eventually fall because its insecure emperors must devote too many resources to planetary defense instead of building more roads and schools. Trantor is an irresistible prize for any outside conquering space horde. The, uh, this idea is conveyed through the minor metaphor of some super exotic birds that this dumb prince is famous for hunting. Their crazy value ensures their extinction. Ultimately, Trantor's insatiable need for more imports left, uh, left it too vulnerable. And this is an overarching metaphor in the book. Big things intrinsically decay. When an empire spreads itself too thin, it will stop investing in its infrastructure, its trade will suffer, and its economy will wither. 
as was also demonstrated in Babby 5, sometimes in order to balance itself out and apply cosmic course correction, the universe must unfurl a refreshing interstellar bowel movement. <laughs> Asimov's answer, or solution, is to have smart people in place to save the day at the right time. As Joey previously mentioned, our education system pumps out automatons, and only the elite minority are trained for leadership and innovation. We can break free from that mold. Western thinking instills in us an illusion of dualism for our world. It is a foe. The haves and the have-nots, the, uh, the U.S. and the communists, the sacred and the profane, real and surreal, the scarecrow and Mrs. King, <laughs> the ranger and Mr. Narn, the valiant stealers, and the peevishly evil ravens, and yin and yang. These are all superficial dichotomies. The only real factual truth that can unite that entire set of relationships is that they are all bound by the symbol and. We love to see things as black and white. We love to group, thing, uh, group everything in packages of and. But the box has taught us to take that dualism and say, now get the hell out of our universe. It is our responsibility to teach others how to mentally arm, spiritually fortify, and nobly save themselves, lest suffer their inevitable collective atrophy into star bits. Huzzah! <laughs> In today's world, take the history of the U.S. as an allegory. It is interesting to note broad-stroke relations between the first, second, and third world during the past 300 years, uh, during the past 300 years. America, like their mercantilistic forefathers, has traditionally reaped and raped the third world by importing mass amounts of raw materials. Just ask every uh, equalitarian uh, equatorial. equatorial island or the uh, 50 plus sub Saharan African countries. From slaves to diamonds, the story is not pretty and it never has been. Then World War II and the boom. No, not the A-bomb. I mean the economy skyrocketed. And while we were counting our money, the dudes running the country hacked a plan to breed a nation of consumers. Yes, everyone knows, we buy tons of crap. But starting with uh, the post-war administration of Truman, then Ike, shopping became an institution of American suburban life. A national pastime. It's scary because it's true. Where do you think Black Friday came from? That egg was laid by dudes in suits. Economists and corporate talking heads. This was never a big problem because all the while, the U.S. had been producing and innovating technology. And then the tech bubble burst. And now, we are exporting food and raw materials to China, and they are producing and innovating the world's technology. Irony is a bitch. Didn't that Russian Earth President read from the teleprompter during Rising Star? Well, on Lost, Ben Linus once said, Fake is a fickle bitch. And so today, what is happening? The proverbial Frankenstein that is our economy is currently bubbling with brown vicious matter. Excuse me, viscous matter. But before we all turn into gooey zombies, remember that hope remains. It's not too late. Unite under the form of transcendental insight through the home starmy. <laughs> so on his on his blog it says through the brain nation. <laughs> <laughs>
Speaking of zombies with brown gooey blood, next week the Brain Nation will provide a special Nook of Darkness presentation as we highlight Max Brooks's novel, World War Z. We leave our beloved Brain Nation with a quote from Max's epic work. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Holla! <laughs> Ambassador Brainy Smurf. That was uh, quite the treatise. Yes, it was. By it the was... way, the uh, the film adaptation of World War Z, I want to say, is being written by J. Michael Straczynski. So. Mm. That should be potentially good. Yeah. He did a good job on Thor, I thought. I mean, that was a movie that I thought couldn't have come across as anything but ridiculous. <laughs> and I think he handled it well. I never watched Thor. Uh, you missed out. Isn't yeah, it? that's what I heard. That's what I see, heard. It's too bad that there's no way for you now to, you know, remedy that and, and see it somehow. Nope. Oh, well. Uh, Joey's Culture Corner. <laughs> well, Foundation. <laughs> oh. Uh, we already we already heard a little bit about it, thanks to the, you know, the Nook of Darkness Culture Corner. Wait, how did that go? <laughs> um, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about the origin of it to start off. The Most of the books in the Foundation series were actually originally written as pulp fiction that were submitted to uh, magazines, you know, the pulp science fiction magazines out of the 50s, 60s, and in that time period. And it was only later in life that Isaac Asimov decided to try and integrate these all into one big story. And he is kind of famous for being one of the few science fiction authors that didn't really care about continuity. <laughs> so there are some continuity errors throughout the series as you go through and you're like, wait, that's not what happened in the last book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, he just kind of hand waves away and says, well, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's, 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 a, it's a detail and you're, you're reading my text too closely kind of thing. Um, certainly that would not fly in today's market. <laughs> no. <laughs> But so it's it's interesting to read them from the aspect of the fact that in the first novel, for example, I want to say there are five five parts to the first novel, and each of those was written independently and published in a magazine. And then later he brought them all together and, and said, "Okay, now this is go we're going to sell this as a novel." Um, we originally did not see uh, Gal. I can't remember what his last name was. The, the country bumpkin that uh, Brainy Smurf talked about. Uh -huh. That was our, our perspective on Trantor itself. Um, that was actually written only for the novelization. So that was not part of this the, the serialized form. And so originally when it was serialized, all you got were, you know that this thing called the Foundation existed. And every in, in each of the stories that is told, it's a world come to crisis. There, it's a it's a crisis where there's only one possible solution that will keep humanity from basically absolutely falling in on itself and, and devouring itself from the inside. And it is through the process of um, creative application of prediction of human behavior that these people are able to save the human race from itself. The interesting thing is that in the in the rest of the series and in the introduction, the, the new section that was written for the novel, we find out that there actually is a you know this whole branch of science called psychohistory that was 
intended to predict the behavior of humanity on a massive scale through the use of statistics and probability. But when the foundation was created, they took 100,000 people, uh, 20,000 families roughly of scientists, scientists and their families, and put them out on this world, out on the very, very edge of known space called the periphery. And they said, okay, you guys are out there to collect all of human knowledge into a Encyclopedia Galactica and, and left them out there, but they didn't send any psychohistorians. Nobody who knew the science of psychohistory and none of the information about the science of psychohistory were made available to these people. And that's because Harry Seldon, the guy who set the whole thing up, realized that if you have foreknowledge of the future, it prevents you from being able to take certain kinds of actions that you will limit yourself and you will narrow down your possibilities. And what happens is that you will actually become stagnant and backward looking. Knowing the future will make you focus more on the past and will prevent you from coming up with creative solutions to problems. So he locks away this whole entire line of thought that created the whole foundation because he knows that it will only do harm to the foundation and the purpose for which he created the science in the first place. Um, Overall, the series as a whole is incredibly good science fiction. It's, I mean, so he would be able to predict if he was right. Yes, by doing this, not for, only for doing this, not only that he is right, but exactly when, like the 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 on the eve of the destruction of humanity, they they all gathered together into this room with a radium lock on a safe that when the next thing triggers over you know the, so it's time to certain points and they don't know when but they all go oh you know what this is it we're about to be destroyed let's all head to this this theater and they go sit down and the image of harry selden appears and says well i see that you've all made it this far it's a and it's a pre-recorded message and he predicted the, like down to the day of when humanity would hit, hit these certain crisis points and you know and he doesn't ever tell them how to fix the problem, but he, he essentially says, oh, you can figure it out. You know, have faith in yourselves. All right, go get it done. <laughs> so is it, is the book written from the perspective of this planet out on the periphery? Yes. So we're not dealing with anybody else. Well, what happens is in, in the very first, the, the new section that's written just for the novel is we see the, the planet of Trantor and we find out that because it, it produces nothing of itself. It is solely bureaucracy. It is a, an entire planet of bureaucrats for running this quintillion person galactic empire. Okay? Everything they, everything well, they have. Well, okay, I, I got confused here. I thought he, he sent, I thought Harry sent them out to the periphery so that they could write this Encyclopedia Galactica. Let me walk you through the five parts. I think it'll explain. All right. In the first part, we see Gal Dornick, I think it was his name was, um, coming to Trantor. He's coming to work for Harry Selden. And he finds out, as he's because uh, he's this kind of country bumpkin kind of guy, and he finds out that the planet of Trantor, the galactic center, the, the, the head of the galactic empire, has become stagnant and is on the verge of collapse because it, it produces nothing except for bureaucracy, and it relies on other planets in the galaxy for everything it, it, it consumes. 
he meets Harry Seldon, whom he's supposed to work for, and Harry Seldon tells him, we have manipulated events in the government to get ourselves banished to the planet of um, Terminus, which is way out on the edge of galactic space. Our, our ostensible reason for doing so is so we can go build the Encyclopedia Galactica. But the real reason for doing so is because we know that there's going to be a fall. Within a thousand years, humanity will go back to complete barbarism. The intergalactic empire will no longer exist. And it will be 30,000 years of darkness. Unless we send these people out here on the edge of space to get them out of the galactic center and, and provide them these opportunities to do these other things. And then it will go from 30,000 years of darkness to 1,000 years of darkness. And at the end of that thousand years, there will once again be an intergalactic empire, or intragalactic empire at least. So that's the first section. Everything after the first section takes place on Terminus. I want to say it's 50, 80, like 300, and then 500 years in the future. Something like that. I can't remember the exact time period. Well, it can't be 500 years because you get two different guys who are the leaders of the Foundation. So you have... Uh, I gotta look up their names here. Salvar Hardin, who you see the beginning of his political career and the end of his political career are two of the stories. As he leads the foundation through the first and second, what they start to call Selden crises. And then several hundred years after the death of Salvar Hardin, it's this new guy, Mallow. I can't remember his first name. Hober. Hober Mallow. Who we see the beginning of his political career and the end of his political career as he leads the foundation through the second or through the third and fourth Selden crises. And so that it, it all takes place on the galactic rim on the planet of Terminus and and among the planets out there on what they call the periphery except for the first section which is on Trantor and setting up how they all got to the periphery and why they're out there. Hmm. How many books are in the, the well there, foundation series? There's there's five books that are that have the title foundation. Well, let's see. There's <laughs> it's hard to say because about a third of Asimov's science fiction ties in in some way or another to the foundation series. So you have the robot novels, which all take place. Sorry, the robot. Oh, robot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take place uh, several thousand years before the Trantorian Empire is ever created. Then you have the Trantorian Empire novels. Then you have the Foundation novels. Then you have the second Foundation series. And then you have two other novels that came at the end. And so it's, it's hard to say exactly how many books okay. there are. Now, in which of those series does the moon... Do the moon people take the moon away? None of them... <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah, you know, I got wondering if you're confusing uh, the gods themselves with Stranger in a Strange Land. I don't know. I don't think I. I don't think I've read a Stranger in a Strange oh, Land. Okay. Right. I swear there were moon people taking the moon away, though. The moon people did these weird dances, and I don't know. I swear there were moon people. <laughs> there were moon people in some of these books, but none of them took the moon away. <laughs> All right, that's fine. Uh, okay, well, did, would you agree with the big idea that Asimov, um, or that Brainy Smurf suggests that Asimov, 
was getting at in when in his write up. Um, he he said something in there that I didn't exactly agree with, and I I'm looking for the names. I lost track of what it was. Uh, he was talking about how the the Galactic Empire fell because it had stopped spending money on infrastructure. I don't think that was the the big idea. At least it's not the big idea I come away with. The big idea that I come away with from this is everything decays. Everything progresses towards entropy. And all we can do is try to hold on to the pieces that are closest to us and be prepared for when it comes. Wow. What a horrible, bleak idea that is. <laughs> you, you have to realize the, the Foundation stuff was actually written... Um, well, the, the germ of the idea was planted when Asimov was reading The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's not a happy yeah. <laughs> environment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if people know. The Roman Empire fell. Yeah, and it was ugly <laughs> as it went down. But yeah, so, so there, are, there are very clear echoes throughout the Foundation series to The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. You can see how he's drawing a corollary between from Roman Empire to American society at least in his lifetime, and all the way, drawing that line all the way through to a galactic empire. And if we continue these trends, here's what's going to happen. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, let's get into ep episodes uh, for uh, this yeah. week. Yeah. All right, we are going to be covering episodes one through four of Babylon 5, season five. You have no idea how long I've been waiting to have that happen. It's been so painful to try and... You know, get the right series, season number in there when I just say the number five. <laughs> Babylon 5 season uh, two. You know, I, I wanted to say five again. It's been painful for me. Anyway, season five. And we'll start off with the episode one, No Compromises. Joey, would you read the summary? The new captain of Babylon 5 arrives. Okay. Um, yeah, new captain. And uh, her name's uh, Captain Lockley. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and she comes in wanting to shake everything up right from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, they talked about uh, how there were incomplete reports. <laughs> yes, they did. Um, I, I don't know. I, I didn't necessarily have a problem with her coming in. It just seemed to me like she was incredibly naive to think that everything could be boiled down to, to a, a purely, you know, militaristic um, setup. You know, that, that just seems incredibly naive to suggest that. Should we talk for a minute about why Lockley is here? I promised we would, so. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we, we did have, uh, I can't remember who posted it up on the Facebook page. We had the Claudia Christian side point of view of why Yvonne yeah. is no longer on the show. So here's from the script books, J. Michael Straczynski's retelling of events. The way he says it is, I will take you through the process of that last season's pickup step by step, date by date, in more detail than has ever been released before. You will see each stage of what happened behind the scenes, many of them never described, in chronological order so that when we are at last done, it is my hope that no one will leave the room confused about what happened. As March of 1997 came upon us, there were stirrings and in intimations from TNT that they might be willing to commission a fifth season in order to finish out the Babylon 5 story arc. But there are still issues to be resolved, most of them having to do with money. 
television-like film runs on the elegant computations that go into something reverently called a business plan. The elements that go into that equation include, but are not limited to, the hard costs of physically producing the show, which go up or down depending on union contracts, and the soft costs of your cast, writers, and producers. What the network is willing to put into the budget, what the studio is willing to put in the budget, and what both those parties stand to make on advertising, so on and so forth. All of that information is entered into an equation of the business plan, at the end of which you get a number. If that number allows you to go ahead, you go ahead. If it does not, you either try to get you try to get either both, either or both of the parties to kick in a bit more cash, which is an iffy proposition on the best of days, but can be done. It was during March through April of 1997 that Warner Brothers and TNT entered the most serious stages of their, their negotiation over the business plan for a fifth season. Everyone involved knew that it would go; it could go either way, and that under even the best of conditions, the process of working out the details could take months. The first inquiry to come from TNT and Warner Brothers was the obvious one. Was there any way we could cut costs to make the business plan work more favorably? You have to understand that going into our fifth year, our per-episode costs were far below any other comparable TV series. The Trek episodes alone were clocking in at $1.9 million per episode, or thereabouts. And many of the new science fiction shows that followed Babylon 5 were also in the range of 1 to 2, 1.2 to $1.7 million per episode. By con contrast, based on the budgets we filed with WB in our fourth season, we were still coming in at roughly $800,000 per episode. We were able to pull this off by virtue of careful long-term planning and a production model that scraped every dollar we had off the stage floor and put it on the screen. We were absolutely down to the bone. So when they said, is there any room for cuts in there, guys? We groaned but got to work. The answer initially was no. We were a lean, mean machine without an inch of fat. We could not touch the actors' contracts because they were guaranteed 10% bumps. And we could not touch the crew's salaries because they, too, were matters of contract with the respective unions. We'd gone back to the well to negotiate that deal in the first place, and we weren't willing to go back again to renegotiate it. The hard costs of the stage, audio, set construction, and camera and lighting couldn't be changed. And given that as producers of the show, Doug Netter, John Copeland, and I were paid just above what one would contribute daily to keep a small child alive, in Africa, there wasn't any room there either. Uh, he goes off on a tangent here. I'm trying to find the end. <laughs> He does mention he got paid $12,500 per episode to produce Babylon 5, which, you know, in TV is not very much money. Having exhausted every other avenue, there is only one conceivable way left to reduce our costs, and that was by going from a seven-day shoot to a six-day shoot. For four years, we'd always finished on time or a bit early, so if we just added a page or two to the schedule and swallowed an occasional day or so of overtime here and there, we might be able to make it work. As we weighed this, we felt it was important to bring our director of photography, John Flynn, into the conversation. I've always said that however much I was the author of Babylon 5 on the page, John was the author of it on the stage. He was the heart and soul of the stage and crew. If he said it could be done, it could. If not, well, John's reaction was immediate, immediate and unequivocal. Can't be done, he said. You can't cut the total number of pages in the scripts because nobody's cutting the running time of the show. So you still have to hit the same number of pages in fewer days on a show that's all over the galaxy, literally and figuratively. It can't be done. I'll make a deal with you, I told Flynn. I'm slated to direct Sleeping in Light as our final episode. If I, who have never directed anything before, 
can direct this episode in six days, then anybody can do it. So if I can do it, will you sign off on the idea? Flynn thought about it, then nodded. You're on, he said. It is to his credit that as we launched into production on Sleeping in Light, it would have been the simplest thing in the world to sandbag me. To take just a little longer here and there to set up some shots, to prove that it couldn't be done. But he came to the party and moved as fast as I did. When we were done, we'd shot a seven-day episode in six days without once compromising on quality. And John Flynn signed on to the idea wholeheartedly. On May 5th, we finished shooting what we all knew would be our final episode one way or another, Sleeping in Light. It was a huge victory for us in terms of a possible fifth season because proving that we could cut a day out of the schedule showed that we could keep our fifth season costs down to the same as our fourth season costs, even though all the actors and crew would get their contractual increases. That saved the network and studio about $100,000 per episode over what they thought they might have to pay. They injected this information into their negotiations as we pressed forward with the two movies TNT had, which would go ahead with or without a fifth season. The first of those, Third Space, went into production around May 21st. The process of waiting for the negotiations to conclude one way or the other whipsawed everyone back and forth between optimism and fatalism. Every day there were new rumors in and out of the production company. Appearing at the Motor City Convention in March at a point when one of the more fatalistic reports came in, Babylon 5 creative consultant Harlan, Harlan Ellison opined that there might not be a fifth season. This spread like wildfire and resulted in Harlan posting a message to half different online services that no decision had yet been reached. John Ordover, editor of the Star Trek novels for Pocketbooks, announced definitively, and some might say gleefully, that Babylon 5 had been canceled and thus there would be no fifth season. Every day as we worked on Third Space, one or another of the members of the cast and crew would come into my office to get the latest word on what was going on. I often knew little more than they did, but tried where I could to give the most current information available. These discussions increased both in frequency and intensity of concern the closer we got to mid-June, which would be a critical period for the future of Babylon 5. To explain, when you hire actors for a TV series, you pay them on a per-episode basis times the number of episodes in which they appear. Some actors are hired for all episodes produced, meaning they are paid to appear in everything, while you others you slot in an 8, 11, 18, or 20 episodes per season. Bill Moomy and Stephen First, for instance, started out in season one with a commitment of eight or eleven episodes. And over the following years, we gradually increased the number of episodes they appeared in, along with their contractual per-episode salary bumps. It is pro forma in many TV series that the cast members share favored nation status, meaning that they are all either paid the same salary or that if one gets a salary bump above and beyond what was agreed upon in the contract, all others get a similar bump. This is important. Remember it. We'll come back to it later. When you hire these actors for your show, you sign them up for a period of time that you think will best serve your show. This is called getting an option on their services. Such, such options can run for as little to two, as two years and as long as six or seven. In the case of Babylon 5, which is a five-year story, we signed our cast to five-year options. In order to be fair to the other cast members, you have to exercise your option on their services within a very specific period of time at the end, after the end of each season. If you delay past that, then the cast are free to go elsewhere or renegotiate their salaries. TNT and Warner Brothers told us they might have an answer about, for, to us about a fifth season by late June or early July of 1997, which was great except that our options expired mid-June. If we missed that deadline, we would either lose the cast to other projects or end up having to renegotiate the entire show, and the additional cost would kill us as effectively as anything else. 
Our only other option was to convince the cast members to extend the deadline by which we could exercise our option to their services. But even with an extension, we could not push that deadline more than 30 days. Therefore, Monday, July 14, 1997, would become the drop-dead date for Babylon 5. If we couldn't A, get the studio and network to commit by that date, B, get the cast to extend to that date, or C, get them to finally sign their contracts by midnight of the last day, if even one of those conditions were not met, there would not be a fifth season. As we move forward towards the completion of Third Space, with In the Beginning set to start filming around June 10th, we decided one of the first cast members we would bring into our confidence on this was Claudia Christian, given that she was very much the cast and crew's unofficial cheerleader. Our assumption was that she would be a valuable asset in getting the others to go along with the situation. We pulled her aside one afternoon, explained the situation to her in detail, and she instantly offered to help get all the other cast members to sign extensions. Doug, John, and I then went out among those cast members to whom we were closest or most friendly to begin the process. When questions arose where we might have a vested interest in how the answer was presented, we directed the cast members, check with your agent, who'd also been brought into the loop, and with your union. Nowhere was this more important than when it came to the one and only shift in revenue that would affect nearly all of us as a result of our planned move to TNT, the residuals formula. First, a word or three about what a residual is and what it isn't. A residual isn't a gift. It isn't a bonus. It's deferred compensation. A writer, actor, or director in television takes a chance that what he or she is working on is going to be successful by taking a fee that is, by comparison, fairly minimal. If the show is successful, then the residuals come back to all those parties. If the show is not successful, then there are no residuals. It's not a gift. It's deferred compensation. The various guilds representing actors, writers, and directors have different rates and formulas for different venues. Reruns of a network show pay the highest fee based on the original fee paid. Syndication being smaller and less profitable gets a break in that the residual figures start at a smaller percentage and finally land at a smaller final number. This is all easily available information that can be confirmed with a quick call to any of the guilds, which is what we can urged all the cast members to do. This had nothing to do with us or with Babylon 5. This was a matter agreed upon contractually by all of our unions long before there ever was a Babylon 5. The four of us, John, Doug, Claudia, and myself, eventually convinced everyone else to get the cast in the cast to sign the extension. So now we had some room to breathe and let the negotiations continue. Let me repeat, everyone involved knew that July 14th would be the drop, date, drop dead date. Then, with just a few days left during which an extension could be signed, John Copeland pulled me aside to let me know that Claudia had not signed her extension. Are you sure? I asked. I mean, she's been the one championing this with everybody else. I'm sure, he said. Do you want to talk to her? Yes, I said, and later that day I grabbed Claudia as she was passing. I recapped what John told me and, she said, and asked, so what's up? She leaned up against the wall and fidgeted in a kid-caught-sneaking-out-of-school kind of way. Well, I was thinking I may need some time off, she said. Not a problem, I responded. Over the course of five seasons, we'd frequently had actors ask for that. Because we liked our cast and wanted to do them well, we always did whatever we could to accommodate it. As noted in a prior volume of this series, for instance, Stephen First had asked and received permission for time away from Babylon 5 to work on a sitcom as a recurring character. Making that adjustment was tough, but there were always ways to work them out. Happy to do it, I continued. Just let me know when and we'll handle it. But we still need the extension signed. That's a different subject. Okay, she said, and headed off. I didn't think too much of it afterwards because I was still in the thick of, uh, thick of running in the beginning, which began shooting on June 10th. 
It was a little over a week later when John returned to my office to say that Claudia still hadn't signed her extension, but that she had assured him it wouldn't be a problem when and if it came time for a pickup. Fair enough, I said. And that, I thought, was that. Around June 27th, as we neared the conclusion of principal photography in, on In the Beginning, I was watching dailies in my office when I was summoned to a conference call with WB, Doug, John, and TNT. I'd had a cold knot in my stomach for the last few days because we'd heard that a final decision could come at any time. Going into the call, I asked John if he thought this was it. He nodded. One way or another, with this one call, we were about to know the fate of our fifth season. To this day, I remember very little of what was said. After our WB liaison, Greg Maday said, Congratulations! I only remember feeling as though a great weight had fallen from my shoulders. We had a fifth season. Not long thereafter, we convened an assembly of all of our cast, crew, and staff in the massive set that served as our central corridor at Zocalo. With Doug and John beside me, I stood on a row of steps on one side of the set as the crowd formed. This was the first time in the entire history of Babylon 5 when we'd had the news of our renewal at a time when everyone was around to celebrate it, and celebrate it we did. For several years previous to this, there had been an annual Babylon 5 conventions in Britain, each larger than the one before it. This latest convention, set to take place over the weekend of July 11th to the 14th in Blackpool, was to be the biggest one yet, with well over 3,000 fans coming from all over the world. The entire cast would be there along with myself and John Copeland, and we were all looking forward to the big event. So on July, on July 1st, as the cast and crew went their separate ways, John, Doug, and I returned to, turned to task yet to be resolved. Yes, we had our fifth season, but in true Babylon 5 form, our troubles were far from over. In the past, we'd have anywhere from two to three months or more between seasons for the writing to get done in advance of shooting. But in this case, we'd only have about six weeks. Because WB had not wanted to commission any script in advance of a final decision from TNT, I would have to start writing immediately and deliver those scripts as fast as humanly possible. Further complicating matters was the fact that even though we'd finished filming season four, post-production on those episodes and the TV movies would continue well into the shooting of season five. This meant we'd still be posting season four right through the crew break and into the process of shooting. What did this mean in practical terms? It meant that in a six-week period, I'd have to edit three episodes, two TV movies, oversee final mixes and CGI deliveries on three that preceded them, write no less than four episodes, and handle full prep on our fifth season, which would be start, which would start midway through that period. The effects complexities of the two TV movies meant that we were also facing our heaviest post schedule ever. Because this schedule represented the most brutally crushing workload I'd ever had to carry, John asked repeatedly, are you sure you can do this? I said yes, because really, what other choice was there? So I started writing that night. Four days later, when I was guest of honor at Westercon in Seattle, whenever I wasn't on a panel or giving a talk, I had head upstairs to my room, writing all weekend. On July 8th, the day I flew to London as my first stop en route to Blackpool, I delivered the script for episode 501, The Deconstruction of Falling Stars, which would now go into the production pipeline to replace Sleeping in Light. I arrived exhausted and jet-lagged, but was still able to hook up the next day with a number of other cast members for the long train ride to Blackpool. The atmosphere on the ride down was jubilant and relaxed. John Copeland had also come in, bringing along the contracts that had been drafted after the renewal order, which the cast would have to sign over that weekend. Remember, in mid-June they had agreed to extend their contracts by one month, so by mid-July those extensions were about to run out. John and I had to ensure that everyone who had given us an extension signed their contracts before midnight Sunday, July 13th so they could be in hand first thing Monday morning at Warner Brothers. There was absolutely no latitude on this. 
Having made the announcements and given the cover of TV Guide, WB and TNT were terrified at the prospect of having the extensions expire, which would put them in the position of having to deal with a series of renegotiations. (laughs) (laughs) Such a situation would be especially difficult for the studio and network to bear, having worked so hard to get the renewal, and it would would unquestionably scuttle the fifth season, regardless of what had been announced. Seeing no problem with any of this, I settled down in my seat on the train and enjoyed the ride over to Blackpool. We'd done it. We'd gotten our five years. It was a moment of triumph, satisfaction, of work that had finally paid off. For the first time in five years, having gotten over our renewal, with all our cast intact, I thought there was nothing the universe could do now to hurt me. I might as well have just stuck out my chin and said to the universe, Go ahead, hit me. I dare ya. Thus began the weekend of July 11th through July 14th, the weekend that I went mad. Not long after arriving in Blackpool, the phone rang in my hotel room. It was Doug calling from Los Angeles. Have you seen the trade papers today, Joe? He asked. No, not asked. Snarled. Doug, I'm in Blackpool. They don't get the trade papers here. (laughs) I could hear Doug winding up on the other end of the phone. Claudia has announced in the trades today that she's leaving Babylon 5. There are moments you can recall later with absolute and utter clarity. You remember where you were standing, the quality of the light, what you were wearing, and the sheer trapdoor plunge of your soul when someone tells you something that doesn't compute, doesn't track, and knocks you right back on your heels with the sheer impossible weight of it. What? I said. No, not what. More like, what? (laughs) That's in this huge font in the book. You heard me, he said. Doug, if this is some kind of joke, I'll fax you a copy, Joe. Find her, talk to her, and find out what the hell is going on because TNT is furious, especially at having to find out about this by reading about it in the trades. Warner Brothers is even more angry, and me, well, you don't even want to know. The text of the article that he faxed me is reprinted below verbatim. Good timing. Though Babylon 5 star Claudia Christian's picture is on the cover of the current TV guide with castmates Bruce Boxleitner and Jerry Doyle, she's the only cast member of the sci-fi show not on board for next season. After years of being produced by Warner Brothers as a first-run syndication show, Babylon 5 changed course by landing with TNT. Christian's contract ran out after the fourth season and she refused an extension offer from WB. So, when Turner closed this deal, the creatives were bummed to find out the show's female lead is a complete free agent. Discussions are underway to sign her to a new deal to keep her in the fold. (laughs) Understand that Doug and I had given the studio and network our word, based on what we'd been told, that everyone was on board for year five. Understand that despite the article's characterization that we were bummed, neither Doug, I, WB, nor TNT knew any of this before reading about it in this article. Understand that studios and networks do not like to be surprised, do not like to be embarrassed publicly, and they especially do not like to feel that they are being held over a barrel. I say all of this so that you will understand why I am not repeating here what was said in the calls that ensued between myself, (laughs) WB, and TNT. Suffice to say that they were drafting a letter to be sent to Claudia's agent Friday, specifying that if she did not sign by the end of the weekend, along with everyone else, she was off the show. Once the calls were done, I raced the convention and started searching for Claudia in the crowd of fans, all of whom, upon seeing me, wanted to say hi, shake hands, and have a moment with me. And though I had been looking forward to sharing this moment with them, the triumph of the fifth season, I now had to blast past everyone in my tracks to try and find out why Claudia had just fired a torpedo up my rear end. My trajectory brought me across John Copeland. I flagged him down. John, did you hear? I heard. Have you found Claudia yet? No. So we split up to improve the odds of finding her. 
I don't remember now if it was me or John who first found her, but find her we did and asked her in short strokes what was going on. Well, I want some time off to do other projects, she said. Claudia, I said, I told you a long time ago that wouldn't be a problem. I know, but I need it in a contract. I only want to do 18 episodes instead of 22. John nodded. Yeah, we can do that. But I want it in my contract that I'm to be paid for all 22. To understand why a slow, creeping horror gripped my soul at hearing these words, we have to go back to the favored nations discussion earlier in this chapter, the one I asked you to remember. All the other actors had signed their extensions, which meant we could now pluck them up under the same conditions. Their favored nation status was one of those conditions. If we gave one cast member a raise, we'd have to give a similar raise to the rest. If we gave it to one and did not give it to the rest, we would be in breach of contract. In other words, if we were put in writing that cast member A would be in X number of episodes, but paid for Y number of episodes, and Y was greater than X, we would have to constitute, that would constitute a per episode pay raise. And we would either have to pay everyone else the difference, or be in breach of contract with every single member of our cast, resulting in all those deals now being null and void. And if we breached those contracts, especially after the extension that had lapsed, there were no contracts, there could be no further extensions, and there'd be no fifth season. We were looking straight at the worst nightmare of every studio, network, and producer in the TV business. It wasn't just the request, bad enough as it was, it was the repercussions of the request that would really kill us. I now offer one piece of speculation, the only piece I will put in this chapter. The salary actors, writers, and directors receive on the show is well known in the TV and film business as their quote. When you go from one show to the next, you can't be paid less than your last quote. At least, it's hard for a studio to negotiate. So all of us in the business are always looking for ways to increase our quote as we go on to future projects. Knowing that B5 was coming to an end with year five, this could have come from Claudia's totally understandable desire to increase her quotes before going back into the market. And since she had not signed the extension, we had no leverage to force the issue. I labeled the foregoing a speculation because, to this day, I do not know for a fact why Claudia took this stance, whose advice she was following, or what the logic was. It may or may not have involved raising her quotes. Her intentions could well have been as benign and well-intentioned as a sunrise over a peaceful green field. But none of that mattered, because at the moment this was said, I knew there was no way we could accommodate it. It would destroy the show and the relations we had worked so hard to create. We'd either have to increase everybody's salaries, which would kill the show for financial reasons, or breach our agreements with the entire cast, which would destroy the show. Claudia, John said, if you want to be in 18 episodes, we're fine with putting that in the contract, and we'll pay you for the 18 episodes you're in. She shook her head. It has to be 18 episodes to appear, 22 episodes paid for. And she went off to do her next appearance at the convention. We'll work it out, John said, noting the stricken look on my face. We'll find a way. Doug's working with Studio on TNT to get them to calm down, and he's good at that. Right now, you and I have other concerns. These concerns involved finding all the other cast members who had signed extensions and making sure that their contracts, that they had signed the contracts that John brought with him. Now, put that information aside for the moment. I'll come back to it. Let's talk about the convention and my continued erosion into madness. Imagine, if you will, hot, airless hallways crowded with lines of people waiting hours at a time for autographs, sometimes literally fainting from heat, while at other times getting to the end of the line only to have the convention move the cast member to do a presentation, leaving everyone to scramble for the next line. I was booked end-to-end, -end, running from signing to solo talk to group of parents to signing, peeling off where possible to talk to an actor about contracts or yell at the convention organizers about the lack of organization. Whenever I'd finish up with one signing on my way out, I'd go down the remains of the line, signing everything I could as fast as possible to ensure nobody walked away empty-handed. I was on the verge of complete physical and emotional collapse from four years of making Babylon 5 
the pressures of having to pull all this together for year five and six weeks, the sudden possibility that it might all be snatched away at the last minute because of this sudden complication from lack of sleep, from lack of food, and since the convention had me so thoroughly booked end-to-end -end that there was almost never a chance to eat during the day. Now, in the middle of all that, imagine walking into a dealer's room where I had specifically warned the organizers against any unlicensed counterfeit merchandise, only to find buckets of the stuff. Shouting ensued behind the scenes. Dealers, furious that I was insisting on the removal of their counterfeit merchandise, would spend the rest of that convention, and it turned out the next several years, bad wrapping me to other conventions all over the world. No sooner had I finished dealing with this problem than Mira Furlan came to me nearly in tears. One of the dealers is selling trading cards they say I've signed, but it's not my signature. Are you sure it's not yours? I asked. She nodded. Stay behind me, I said, and headed for the dealer's room. Now, at six foot three, I'm a tall guy. And Mira, well, she isn't. <laughs> so as I headed for the table in question, she was able to fold in behind me almost invisibly. To show how clueless this guy was, he had no idea who I was as I approached. <laughs> Which worked to my benefit in this case. I glanced over his inventory and found the, found the signed Mira Furlan cards. Can you assure me that these were indeed signed by Mira? I asked. Absolutely, he said. She signed them in my presence. Really, I said and stepped aside. Mira, could you verify for me that this is your signature? <laughs> it's not, she said. It's a forgery. The dealer began backpedaling as fast as he could. Oh, you mean these Mira Furlan cards? <laughs> no, no, no. These were ones that were signed in front of... These weren't the ones that were signed in front of me. These were sold to me by an American. Oh, man. I had him Dirty Americans. I had him physically ejected from the convention, yelling, out, yelling after him, Stop being a counterfeiter! <laughs> As fans stared at what they emotionally must have thought was a madman yelling at a perfect stranger. Now, in between all of this... The rush of adrenaline standing in front of fans, adrift in a sea of flashbulbs, the roar of cheers and applause as the fifth season was announced at, and was announced and at each panel thereafter. Andreas and Peter on stage and yeah, I lost the thread there. Sorry, Andreas and Peter on stage and to the joy of fans performed the Jakar Londo seduction scene. The full cast Wait, of what? <laughs> we'll get to that. <sighs> the full cast of Babylon Five and myself gathered repeatedly on stage together getting the kind of reception normally reserved for rock stars. At one point, I was standing backstage with Walter Koenig, waiting to go on. As he looked out at the audience, shaking his head, I lived through this once before on Star Trek, he said with quiet awe in his voice. I never thought I'd see it again. Well, what's the common denominator? I asked. The only thing the two shows have in common is you. <laughs> he smiled. <laughs> Among all the other organizational difficulties plaguing the convention, it turned out they booked me into a slightly larger room than they had been authorized by the convention. So that afternoon, while I was out dealing with fans, actors, and the end of the universe as we know it, the hotel clerk sent cleaning staff up to my room, and without telling me, packed up all my stuff and moved it into another, smaller room. Those of you reading the preceding paragraph are probably thinking, so what's the big deal? Yeah, it was rude and unprofessional, and the convention screwed up, but why mention it here? Why make a fuss over it? Oh, gentle reader. You have no idea. You see, prior to getting started on year one of Babylon 5, I'd broken down every single season, episode by episode, onto 3x5 index cards, which I kept on a shelf. Yes, the overall arc was in an encrypted file on my computer, but the details were in the cards. Each card had the title, the basic story of the episode, key parts of dialogue, bits and pieces of scenes, all written on cards shoved into matching pockets, 22 pockets per page, in a three-ring binder I kept in my office. Mm. 
the whole Babylon 5 arc was hidden in plain sight the whole time I was doing the show. Anybody who took the time could have pulled down that binder and seen the whole story. Once having put them in the binder, I generally didn't look ahead more than the season I was looking on because I didn't want to get too far ahead of myself or to get too hopeful about the coming season's prospects. Once the renewal came for a season, I took out that season's cards, laid them out, and transferred all my original notes into pages and pages of detailed breakdowns. The cards, I emphasize again, did not contain just general plot elements, but detailed scenes and dialogue, things I had worked on for years, far too much to keep in your head years later. Because of the need to get as much material written as quickly as possible, I'd brought the cards with me to England. I hadn't had the time to review them prior to writing Deconstruction, because that operated outside the five-year arc, so the cards weren't required. Going through them was always a slow, detailed process, and I figured I'd dive in while I had free time at the convention. But when the staff moved my belongings from the small room I'd been given to an, into an even tinier one, in their haste to clean the place out for a paying customer, they threw out all my notes on season five. Oh, gosh. There are no polite words in the English language to describe my reaction upon returning to the hotel to discover what had happened. No. Oh. I was as far past apoplectic as Alpha Proxima is past Burbank. When I found out what had happened, I literally screamed in horror, much to the dismay of the hotel manager, who, after hearing his return, who, after his hearing returned, blindly suggested that this material was really so important that I should check the dumpsters behind the hotel. In response, I made several suggestions of my own before deciding that the dumpster idea was probably the only really workable recommendation. Do you have any idea the sheer volume and hideous nature of the trash thrown out each day by a hotel? A hotel where a convention is going on? Oh, no. No? I do. On what should have been the most triumphant weekend of my entire career as a, as a writer, and the executive producer of what MIT described as one of the three most seminal science fiction shows in American history, there I was, in the back of the hotel, tearing through plastic bags full of empty liquor bottles, disposable diapers, soiled clothes, used Tampex, Kotex, condoms, diaphragms, and balled up clumps of tissue paper containing remains of who knows what horrors. All of it, all of it, for nothing. The notes were gone. Now, in the midst of all of that, go back and factor in running from actor to actor in an effort to get the contract signed by midnight. Explaining the ramifications of the basic cable residuals formula over and over, even though they'd had well over a month to discuss this with their agents and the Screen Actors Guild. And while some had taken the time to investigate the changeover, and had no problem signing the new contracts, many others still didn't understand it despite our explanations. Why would some of the actors evince this reticence, you, you ask? Writers and actors share one trait. We are, or perceive ourselves as, constantly being screwed over by producers, studios, and networks. Most of the time it's true, sometimes it's just perception. Like so much of the story of Babylon 5 itself, the war that weekend was between truth and perception. As much as we were close and friendly during production, at the end of the day, John, Doug, and I were producers, and they were actors and the perception noted in the paragraph immediately preceding this one was very much in force. Nor can they be blamed in the least for that perception, because when you're suddenly told that your residuals formula is being adjusted into a lower category, the natural reaction is to think that somehow you're getting screwed, and this whole thing is a trick. For those who'd done their homework, it wasn't an issue. For those who hadn't, the explanations were being offered in the middle of a convention, with everyone tired and being pulled in a thousand different directions by fans, dealers, and so on. The more we explained, the fuzzier things became for me. Further complicating matters that this was all taking place over a weekend, during which agents and the Screen Actors Guild residuals office would be either closed or unavailable to confirm. Why do we have to do this now, this weekend, today? We were asked. What's the rush? 
Why can't we wait until the coming week so we can talk to someone? Leaving aside the logical response, why didn't you call your guild and get this confirmed before coming here? We explained again that we couldn't push it past midnight July 13th. As the clock ticked down Sunday night, John and I ran from room to room, actor to actor, meeting to meeting, answering questions. Every time we got another contract signed, John would run down to the business office in the hotel and fire off a fax to the executives, who would be coming in first thing Monday morning to ensure that all the contracts had been arrived. By a few hours before midnight, we had all but Andreas, Mira, and Claudia. In the middle of the night, around 11 p.m., Peter marched upstairs to Andreas' room, contract in hand, and banged on the door. Andreas came to the door naked. What? <laughs> Andreas said. Peter, who'd done his homework and understood the issues, shoved the contract, uh, contract uh, at Andreas said, Sign it. Trust me. Andreas signed what he used for the pen, as anyone's guess, and without a word, closed the door and went back to bed. Meanwhile, downstairs, John and I were sitting with Mira, going over the whole thing one more time, before she finally signed, still not entirely convinced that we weren't running a number on her. As the final moments approached, I again tracked down Claudia. We sat in the bar in full view of a number of fans, and I set aside all the pride to plead with her one more time to sign the contract. I just don't feel comfortable signing it, she said at last, and walked out of the bar. Bruce pleaded with her to sign. Jeff Conaway did the same, even tried to be an intermediary in her behalf, but she declined. Nonetheless, still refusing to give up, I returned to my tiny room, sat at the tiny desk, and wrote out a long note to her on hotel stationery. I emphasized that Warners was absolutely sincere when they said they'd move on if she didn't sign. I closed by saying that if I used every resource at my disposal, I might be able to convince them to give her one extra day, that Monday, the last day of the convention as a special favor to me, but that's as far as anyone could possibly go. I faxed a similar note off to Doug and WB, hoping indeed to buy her that one extra day. After slipping the note under the door to her room, I walked back down to the bar, just as John came in after faxing off the last of the contracts. He lay on the floor of the bar as if daring anyone to step on him. Above us, the clock told midnight. The next morning, the last day of the convention, Claudia abruptly announced to the surprise of everyone present, both cast and fans, that she was leaving for a sh photo shoot. I tried to catch her on the way out, but she blew past me and continued away. We had our fifth year, but we would have to do it without Claudia. So there is the J. Michael Straczynski version. Long, happened. long yeah. version. I said get ready for a long one. Enjoyable story. There's no <laughs> denying that. It was enjoyable to, to read. And it, I, I didn't know what was in his room that got thrown away, but I knew as soon as you said cleaning crew that it was gone. <laughs> I well, knew it. Was it was season five. Yeah. And, and we'll never know what that season five was supposed to be. He mentioned several times you're here. Yeah, I have no idea. I just made this episode up because I don't know. I don't remember now what it was that was supposed to go in here. Uh, um, well, I'd like to think, I really would like to think that we would have gotten not the episodes that we have. Yeah. But, the, you know, season five truly was supposed to be extensions of some of the really cool stuff that we would have liked. You know, longer battle to take over Earth. You know, longer uh, Cartagia stuff. Yeah. I I'd like to think that that's really what it was all about. Um, definitely drastically different from the way that Claudia Christian Claudia Christian explained it on that podcast that they had, which but you mentioned and and I agreed with you. It is it was a terrible podcast. <laughs> I like. I don't understand how they got Kosh to be on their podcast at, at that call. Maybe we just need to extend extend the invitation. If they can get Jeffrey Willers, maybe we can get Pat Tallman. 
<laughs> you know, they're married. I don't know if you knew that. I, I think yeah, I did know that. Uh, the the real problem is trying to do stuff over the phone. Yeah, no, I agree. Just doesn't it work. Doesn't, it's not. It's it's bad. It's you part of to... what makes that podcast so awful. Yeah. Plus the the immense amount of foul language was ridiculous. Yeah. Really bad. Anyway, uh, no compromises. Uh, some stuff happens. Um, new captain. Uh, Byron shows up, and um, so Byron was originally supposed to be a love interest for Ivanova after Marcus. So Marcus, the way it was supposed to go, Marcus dies. Oh wow, what is it with long flowing hair then? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Did you notice that all of those? Yes, all of the male telepaths were. They looked like the character Sully from <laughs> Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman. <laughs> yeah, so ridiculous. So the 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 idea that he'd wanted to set up was. She knew Marcus loved her, and she even maybe had feelings for him, but she didn't want to accept them. And then Marcus dies, and so she, what does she do? She immediately jumps into the first bad relationship that comes her way, which is the relationship with Byron. So there was supposed to be a love interest thing going on there that was going to work out incredibly poorly for the character of Ivanova, just to show that, you know, just because your heart is broken doesn't mean you should jump right into another relationship that doesn't necessarily work out well. Yeah. Um, so we also have Jakar is supposed to be writing the, the new declaration. Yep. Um, and the oath of office. Yeah, the oath of office. Now, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember when we first started working for, or maybe you came into Internet Solutions too late, but when we were employed together. Sorry. Inter-net-solutions. Um, one of the things that I had said, well... In every company that I've been part of the founding of, I've said, we need to have a declaration of principles. We need to decide no, what this I, company is about. No, I have no Did idea. Did you read the one that we no. had for Internet Solutions? No? Okay. I have. Th- you mentioning it right here is, as far as I can recall, the first time I've ever heard of it. That's unfortunate. We had one. <laughs> Seems like it was a poor one because that company fell apart like six months after I showed up. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was a good one, and that's why the company fell apart, because the Declaration of Principles was not adhered to. Uh, anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, we can boil this down to there's an assassination attempt against uh, President uh, the new soon-to-be president of the Interstellar Alliance. Of the Interstellar Alliance. And uh, uh, the mute saves the day. Yeah. And um, then, oh gosh. Okay, so the guy goes off, the the assassin. You know, he's able to get himself away. And into a Star Fury? Yes. <laughs> because the Star Fury Bay, as far as I can tell, was right next to where they were meeting. <laughs> because not only does he get in there really fast, and without anyone noticing... Like, how they don't put out, like, a station-wide alert. They do, and it's playing over the speakers as that pilot is sitting there tying his shoe. Oh, and I, the guy I, comes I, up and whacks him in the back of the I head. guess I just totally <laughs> missed that. Um, which, it, that seems odd. Like, that seems like what would be considered a secure area. Yeah, that was my biggest problem with it. was, wow, so apparently anyone can stroll into the Star the Fury base. <laughs> anyway, so he gets aboard a Star Fury... And launches it himself. Yeah. Which everything I've ever noticed is, okay, you launch, like CNC launches you. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it always seems like CNC does something and then the Star star Furies launch. I I don't think it's that much of a stretch to imagine that 
the CNC is just giving the, the order. Go order. Yeah, it doesn't actually have to do anything, but they're Fair just enough. making it. Official. I can agree with that. I can accept that. But what I don't accept is CNC has no idea that somebody has just launched a Star Fury. Well, we know that it, that Babylon Five somewhere gets a report, right? Because that's what Garibaldi responds to. Oh, okay. He's sitting there and he's looking at a computer screen and goes, and he's like, "What the? No, no!" And he runs down and gets into Star Fury too. Okay, the next problem I have. Okay, Garibaldi gets into a Star Fury like right away. <laughs> it moves at the speed of plot, Pete. <laughs> yeah. Well, it has to be going super fast because everybody is still milling around in this place where this thing had just happened. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Garibaldi latches a hold of it with the claw. The grappler, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he manages to, you know, get the guy away. Episode ends. Okay. I, I don't really... There wasn't, a, like, a ton of stuff in here. Like, a, like, I guess the only question I came up with was, would you postpone the inauguration if you knew there was, you know, a threat against your life? No, but I would use a decoy. <laughs> Somebody else would take the oath of office. That's right. I'll take it later in private. <laughs> you got to give the appearance of strength. You don't necessarily actually have to be strong. Oh, man, that's funny. I, um, I, I like the line in here. All the security in the world can't stop lone gunman willing to exchange his life for the target. Uh, I actually, one of the few things I liked about this episode was Jakar's... Uh, Do you want to be president? You want to be president? Fine. Put your hand on here and say yes. Yes. All right. Let's, let's go, go eat. eat. <laughs> that, that was good. That was that was enjoyable. Uh, okay. Um, and Garibaldi becomes Sheridan's spymaster. Yeah. The uh, um, head of covert affairs or covert actions or covert I can't Security, I think he said. Covert right. something rather. Yeah. Uh, listener comments? Yes, listener comments. Okay, I'm going to start off with money bags here. Uh, okay. Well, guys, hey, season five is upon us. Hey, season five? Um, <laughs> well, season five is upon us. The first batch of episodes isn't much, but there is a good one in here. Let's get this over with. I mean, on to the episodes. <laughs> no compromises. Oh, brother. In season two, I talked about how I liked Sheridan's first scene and said I would revisit it in season five. In Sheridan's first scene, he talks about what a great place Babylon 5 is. In Lockley's first scene, what does she do? She insults Babylon 5. Apparently, things are a little chaotic on a station with a quarter million souls from various races, many of whom hate each other. And 20 or so ambassadors, many of whom hate each other. <laughs> that means Babylon 5 is poorly run. Oh, and there was an interstellar war or two as well. I guess that's no excuse. From the first, I didn't like Lockley, which is not a slam against Tracy Scoggins. She's at least as good an actress as Claudia Christian. <laughs> I, I disagree with that. I think she is hands down better than uh Claudia Christian. I, I I have to go with money bags here. I, I, it's damning with faint praise, but she's at least as good as Claudia Christian. I, I, okay. I don't know. I, I can't agree with that. She she puts in better pre, uh, performances. Anyway, then we have Byron and his group of emo telepaths. <laughs> it feels like they were almost going for a 
human jacar of sorts. No offense to the actor, but he's no Andreas. And his, um, and his intensity about everything gets old quickly. Yeah, definitely. The assassination plot was pretty, pretty blah and by the numbers, although the Star Fury was a nice touch. TV 6, Sci-Fi 5. Okay. Okay. Uh, Brainy Smurf. What's up, Joey, Brain Nation, Peter, and Moneybags, and maybe the Bob? I don't know what we were, uh, I don't know what we were covering this week, but here are some words. <laughs> okay, seriously. Lieutenant Corwin hasn't earned a special Membari woven uniform yet? <laughs> he, it's true. He's it's just like walking around with like a silk shirt or something. It's weird. Yeah. He is my 11th favorite character on the show. <laughs> and of that list, only Marcus and the Box are humans. Socks were Dumbledore's favorite present to receive. And mine too. Yay for the fun-looking game. Sci-Fi 7, TV 7. Those are definitely words. It certainly was. He fulfilled what he was going to say. Okay, Pete. Science fiction rating. Five. Oh, I give it a six. Uh, I think with the the Babylon the telepaths arriving on Babylon Five and being given a home yeah. there, like this is this is the first uh, group of people that we can really say that is their home world now. Their home world is Babylon Five. Yeah, some of I guess the assassination stuff was just a little too cliche okay. for me. And I, as I mentioned, the problems I had with what was you know how yeah. fast things happened. Okay. TV rating? Five. Same here. Uh, the P5 rating is 7.45. Moving on to our next episode, The Long Night of Londo Malari. As Londo lays dying of a near-fatal heart attack, Lanier decides to leave Babylon 5. <laughs> the two are not related. <laughs> did you intentionally write it that, write it that yes, way? <laughs> Mostly because I lose all respect for Lanier as a character in this episode. Oh, that's not fair. I think it is. He he, he becomes. I a, think the way he gets coward. treated uh, isn't fair. Um, yeah, the, the, I guess the cat's out of the bag now. Lanier's leaving, and it was because Bill Mooney had contract disputes. <laughs> Uh, so if you'd like to go into the next, uh, the next uh, reading. 45 minute reading. <laughs> oh, holy kidding. Um, okay. So Londo apparently looks like he's poisoned, but turns out he just has a heart attack. Apparently. Or has, sorry, he has hearts attack. No, heart attack. It was heart left attacks. heart. Attacks. Just his left heart was under Just attack. one of them. Yeah. All right. But, uh. The uh, apparently it's brought on by guilt. I did not realize that <laughs> <laughs> guilt could cause heart attacks. But, oh. but you know that's that's what we're supposed to get out of this episode is that Londo is so emotionally distraught and so working so hard to repress that that it has physically manifested as a heart attack. <laughs> oh, I think we would just call that stress, but <laughs> sure, whatever. Uh, if that's the case. I pray you never feel guilt about anything. It will crush you. Uh, okay. Uh, so he's off. He's taken to med lab. And Veer is kind of there. And Franklin tells Veer 
Go. But he tells him, go. Yeah. Where is he supposed to go? Well, it's as though Franklin's giving him this command like, oh, we need you to go and get this special flower off of the top of the mountain, which will save him. Go! Go, (laughs) man! Go! I did not understand that scene at all. Why would you send Veer away? Because you may have to do some uncomfortable things to Londo here, and the last thing you need is for Veer to see all that. No, I, I I don't buy that. When when they do certain kinds of medical procedures, they ask the family to leave the room. And Vera's as close to family as Londo's got. Nah. His wives don't count. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, we already mentioned the bipulmonary system of the Centauri. Yeah. And Londo has visions like a Christmas carol. <laughs> I don't know if you felt this way or not, but I definitely kind of, as we got into this, I was like, oh my gosh, is is Straczynski ripping off Dickens Dickens here? <laughs> I can see. I didn't get that at all. I, I know it's not the, it's not the, you know, set in stone thing, but I mean, we're seeing portions of his past and I, I just, okay. you know, he seemed to have this wanderer who's coming along, helping him through this path to help change him you know he's supposed to be going through this changing process um and let's see here empty bottles yeah um he's like he was talking about even more cliche or something like yeah the metaphor is getting a little thick eh yeah um then i wrote turn around Oh, why won't you turn around? Yeah. It's because he wouldn't face Jakar, and right. he knew that Jakar was back there. So, so here's my question for you. you know, over the course of the episode, there is a question posed. Is this really Jakar, or is it a hallucination in, in Londo's mind, or is it his conscience taking a, a physical manifestation that he knows will make him uncomfortable? What do you feel is the... What was the second option? Is it just a hallucination? It's just... That was the first it's one. Just, it's just a fever dream. No, no, no. Oh. Is it a piece of Jakar left over from dust to dust when Jakar psychically <laughs> invaded Londo's mind? No, I don't think it's that. Really? No. That's the one that I think is the case. No. Because right as it cl- as, as it comes to the climactic inter- interaction between Jakar and Londo, you see Jakar enter the med lab at the same time. I think that they still have somewhat of a psychic link no. after the events of Dust to Dust. No, I, I don't buy that because the dust is gone from the system now. There, There is no more link. Jakar isn't actively trying to be in there. I, I don't buy that okay. for, for myself. Um, I think it's Londo just... He knows exactly what he's done. He knows what Jakar would say to him and he's putting himself through that to hopefully, you know, make a change in his life. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay, so the whole point Jakar is trying to get to Londo to understand is, look, you never spoke up. You never said anything in all of this. And it doesn't matter if uh, they stopped. It doesn't matter if they listened. Mm-hmm. You had an obligation to speak out. Right. And he goes in and he's, he, I think they talk about how, okay, are you sorry about this uh, because you're actually, you feel bad or are you sorry because you got caught yeah. in all of that stuff? 
And I think I told a story before about how in my youth, you know, I, I got in trouble at home and, you know, I was like, oh, sorry, mom. She's like, why are you sorry? Like, oh, I bet, no, are you really actually sorry you did it or are you sorry you got caught doing it? And I remember that. That, that taught me a lesson pretty harsh. It's something I'm struggling with as a parent because I know that my kids are still at the stage of they're sorry they got caught. <laughs> There's no genuine remorse for certain things that they do that drive me crazy and that, you know, I discipline them for. It's still, I'm sorry I got caught. And and I've tried to make the point to my daughter, especially, who has a real problem with lying. And I've told her, what? If you come Sweet to me, little Betty. Yes. I said, if you come to me and say, Dad, I made a mistake, I said, I don't care how big the mistake is. If you come to me and say, Dad, I made a mistake and I need your help fixing it and repenting of it, I will always help you first. I, and, and if you, I find out you lied to me or you hid something from me, I will always be more angry about the lie than I will about whatever it is that you did. Just tell me what you did so I can help you. And she still will lie to me right to my face, and I will catch her in it. And then she's you know all tears, and I'm sorry. And, and I'm just like, it, it's too late now. You had a chance. I And that's when the beatings begin, That's right? when the beatings begin. No, no. <laughs> I don't beat her. I do spank her sometimes. Not often and not too hard, because I don't generally have to hit her very hard to get my point across. Because as soon as she gets caught, she knows... You know, I, I tell her, I say, you know what, I am extremely disappointed in you. I thought I could trust you. I thought you were a big girl. You know, we'd started to give you some more responsibilities and some more options around the house, and those are all gone now. You're going back to being treated as a little girl. So the last time, the most recent time I caught her lying, I made a sign. And <laughs> my wife and I had a big fight this about it. This is going to be great. Everyone listen up. <laughs> my wife and I had a big fight about it. So I didn't make her wear the sign. But there's a sign hanging on the fridge right now that says, I'm a liar. <laughs> and I told her, the next time I catch you lying to me, you are going to wear that sign for a full day. Uh, and I don't care if it's where you have to wear it to school. I don't care if you have to wear it to church. If I catch you lying again, you're going to wear that sign. Because i got to do something to get across to this little girl that lying is the worst part. Because you still did the thing bad. Whatever it was, but now you've compounded it by lying about it. Uh, have you tried rubber bands on the back of the leg? That's a really tender spot on a kid. <laughs> that, that might wake him up like, ah! No, I haven't tried that one. <laughs> oh, that was just our household, eh? <laughs> hmm. I don't know. You know if people have some, some advice on, on how to help with that, I would appreciate hearing it. It's, it's a struggle. It, you have to just constantly stay on top of it. And you cannot just continually just think of her as a liar. I, I can't remember what uh, um, uh, what uh, person it is that that talked about the the labels that you give to your kids. I want to say it was somebody in our church at at one of our uh, uh, general conference. general uh, general conferences that happened twice a year. They talk about how you have to be careful. You just don't constantly give labels of, you know, disappointment and you're a loser and, you know, you're not doing things right. If you just continually focus on the bad stuff. And I'm not dare suggesting that you were even coming close to that. But I, you know, 
making her wear the the the, the, sign. the sign that says I'm a liar. That's gonna have a tough. That's gonna be tough for the little kid to live down. I'm just suggesting make sure that there are also the alternatives of you know you recognizing her for the really awesome stuff that I'm. We're all sure that she's doing. Yeah, I I I, I do try very hard. Yeah. to... That, that would be the the bit of advice that I okay. would offer. Thanks. But I, I'm not actually a parent, um, you know, <laughs> despite all of the, the people who have tried to suggest otherwise over the years. <laughs> no, I'm not only kidding. That That's not even true. Um, I, I think there are some other parents out there who could probably uh, shed some light on the yeah. subject. I asked my mother and she said, boy, I sure wish I could have figured it out because all you boys are liars. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, too funny. Too funny. Um, okay, uh, let's see here. Oh, I found this to be a weird metaphor. At the very end, Londo's like, oh, and he, you know, down at the bottom of the thing is his heart, who's supposedly beating up out of there. Yes. And he breaks the glass. And the shattered glass falls Shit. on the heart. Yes! <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote, uh, how did I phrase this here? All that shattered glass falling in his heart can't be a good thing. <laughs> I didn't think so either. I didn't understand. If it is supposed to be a metaphor, I clearly missed what yeah, it was. Yeah, me too. I, I and if it's not, uh, okay, I guess it might lend itself to being a dramatic scene that we should say, oh, yeah, he broke through to his heart. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I'm glad you found it weird, too. I really enjoyed the conversation between Londo and Sheridan. Uh, and the way Sheridan's clothes are yeah, it's are constantly shifting. changing. That was a little weird. I couldn't follow the white why. robes at the end. I thought were awesome. I was like, do we totally need to see Sheridan dressed like that after he's made president? <laughs> <laughs> but he looked good dressed as a ranger. He's a handsome man. Oh, the, the box styling that uniform out. I was never fond of the boxes. Um, I don't know Physique? what to call that vest oh. thing that he wears. The elongated vest. Okay. The thing that doesn't actually have arm, you know, <laughs> sleeves to it, and it's just, I, I, I don't care for that. When he's just in the regular uniform, looks like, great. Like his sleeveless dress vest. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I know it's weird. Uh, anyway, Londo finally does apologize to Jakar out of the dream. Yes. And, you know, he, he says to him, I'm sorry, Jakar. Nice. Yeah. Very good. I, you've been working on a that. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Don't this ask me to do anything man. more than you know one small phrase on a dying deathbed. That was impressive. <laughs> I hope the microphone even picks that up. I'll boost the game on that one. <laughs> Don't waste your time. Uh, okay, so the there are a couple of things with Lanier. Lanier is to be... is He says he's going to become a ranger. And Delenn... Feels the need to inform him, I'm assuming, that, you know, because Lanier is really dumb and doesn't hasn't noticed that being a ranger is dangerous. I, I, I didn't care for that. Like, Lanier has been doing just as much work as a ranger has been doing. Her, that, this is her attempt to say, I am concerned for you. I, I would hate for you to die. That's what she's trying to do. It's weird, and I don't think it comes across well for okay. me. Um, and then at the, the very, um, let's see, or not the end, but towards the middle, um, Veer and Lanier at the bar yeah. saying see, goodbye. Yeah. 
I, that's a great scene. I uh, for me, it's probably one of the best scenes in this. He's drinking a, a, uh, a Shirley Temple. <laughs> yes, that, that was. Yeah. No, I studied human religion quite extensively. I don't remember that temple. <laughs> I don't have anything else. Um, uh, there are clear uh, echoes of both comes the Inquisitor and Dust to Dust throughout this episode in in the Londo dream vision things. I I really liked um, the scene where Londo is being whipped while a Cartagia de Jacar is watching on counting. I, I thought that was really good metaphor. I enjoyed it. Okay, listener comments. All right, we'll do Brainy Smurf. He says, In my story, Veer has already killed Londo, nullifying this episode. Sigh, sigh. Lanier quits his job and acts like a wimpy guy. I hate saying this. I wish I could help him score some ladies. I could work on Babby 5 as a hitch-like dating coach for frail-minded, insecure Minbari. <laughs> if Lanier was such a disciplined monk, he would be able to get over this hang-up. Yes. So in my universe, his wimpiness never happens. Thank you. I applaud. Four. That's all he wrote. The four. number four. Okay. So that could be for science fiction or television. Or combined or, score. Or both. I agree with him. I, I absolutely agree with him. I hate what they did to the character of Lanier here. Okay. Uh, Moneybags says, I agree with Londo. The metaphor is getting a bit thick. <laughs> that about that about sums it up. I felt like they were trying to cram a season's worth of character development into one episode. And Lanier is leaving. Boo. Too many things change in season five. Not that they shouldn't. Given Lanier's relationship with Delenn and the fact that she's just married Sheridan, Lanier leaving does make sense. I just don't want him to go. Sheridan was kind of being a jerk about the whole thing, saying, well, three's a crowd. And when Delenn said that, in Mimbari, three is sacred, I rolled my eyes and replied, of course it is. <laughs> There's a famous saying on Minbar, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, that's sacred. <laughs> <laughs> when I first read this at work today, I just started laughing. I was so glad that there wasn't anyone around my office so that I didn't have to try and explain that to them. Uh, and although I love the Delenn-Lanier relationship until now... It's starting to get creepy. We know Lanier loves Delenn, but it was always semi-platonic. Now we see that it's more than that, and Delenn seems to already know. It now seems like a really unhealthy relationship for an employer and employee. All in all, a blah episode. The dream sequence didn't do it for me, with the exception of the scene with Jacquard dressed up as Cartagia. Which was awesome. TV 5, Sci-Fi 5. I think it's interesting that to him, it was always a platonic relationship to this point. I don't get that read at all. It, it was sure. clear to me from early in, in the introduction of the character Lanier, he has an unhealthy fixation with, with <laughs> It's tough to call it unhealthy. Well, it's unhealthy for him because it's not, it's, it's not a two-way street. Okay. Uh, science fiction rating. 
I give this one an eight. I love the Londo Dream stuff and and the the way they play with metaphor. Ooh. I I I enjoyed it. I thought that it was an excellent use of metaphor. Uh, I can't agree with you. Um, like I said, I thought this. You don't have to. It's my rating. Yes, I I, <laughs> I thought that this was a little too close to a Christmas Carol. Okay. For for my liking, um, the uh, the linear stuff. I you know I've been in that position before. I was going to ask you, man. I, just, I, I whipped out and I not to ask you. You know, I, I have... Have you been in a relationship like that before? Yeah, I, I have. Because I have liked a certain lady friend. And then I ended up feeling what I felt was a betrayal by one of my close friends. And was sweeped right in and took her away. <laughs> uh, and I wanted nothing. I, I, it was painful. It was one of the worst relationships or breakups or ceasing of relationships that I had ever been in. Like, I was head over heels for this girl. Like, darn near in tears. Wow. If you can believe it. Uh, and to constantly continue, yeah, they, <laughs> writing that down, what are you going to do, steal the, the next girlfriend away? Don't well, have one. I'll, 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 as soon as you get interested in a girl, I'll send Aaron in to sweep her off her feet. Because <laughs> <laughs> that will be truly crushing. <laughs> oh, that would be. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted nothing to, I, to see them was painful. And like I said, the guy who, he, that stole her away in my mind. He was really one of my close friends at the time. And, uh, it, I, I had to move on. It just, I ignored her. I had she to go away. Me. I know. I know she did, Joey. <laughs> Screw you. Uh, did I say six? Six. For television, Joey. Uh, for television, I give this a four. I think that there's enough hmm. weird emotional discomfort on all sides of this episode, that it might make it uncomfortable for people to watch and enjoy. Hmm. Interesting. I gave it a six just because I felt like, you know, there are crossovers to this. It is because of the fact that the awkward relationship uh, that lots of people have, have been in in their life, they can relate to that. And, you know, the, the change that uh, Londo is supposedly going through, yeah, people can relate to that. I see your point that people can relate to relate to it. I just don't think they really want to see it in their entertainment. Mm. You know, I, it's a, it's, it is a bit of an escape, and you get you know bogged down in that kind of emotional crud. I don't think is, is yeah, it's not happy ending type yeah. of stuff. The P five rating is eight point five two. Moving on to our next episode, the Paragon of Animals. The Interstellar Alliance signs the Declaration of Principles, and Garibaldi tries to get Byron's telepaths to join him. Um, okay. A little better episode in my mind. I, you know, I really enjoyed one aspect here at the very beginning at the, the teaser, um, where Garibaldi and Sheridan are talking about the difficulty in getting people to change their mode of thinking. This is a, a really hard thing to do. You know, when I first started my job with my current employer, it, they had a process in place that was incredibly manual. And it required people who had a, a CPA degree to actually come in and do the job. 
So they're really you know, highly paid people and they're only doing a few of these audits on customers every year. And over the course of the next few years, we turned it into something that we could literally go hire people right out of college, no matter what their degree was in, bring them in and software solved all of this CPA stuff for them. And they were just having conversations with customers. That's what it boiled down to. And getting the people who were there in the company from the beginning to shift their mode of thinking into, you know, we're going to let software take care of all of this and you just need to focus on the relationship with the customer was incredibly hard. And now that we've been purchased by another firm and we have a new boss and he wants to change our way of doing things yet again, being on the other end of that and having someone come to me and say, no, you know, you, you have this way of thinking. You need to you need to throw it out and start over and come come follow me the way I want you to do it. You know, we had that conversation this evening where we, well, we both pretty much badmouthed the your new boss. <laughs> but let's be honest, yes. we were. Yeah. I wonder if we would we wouldn't be badmouthing him if he had come to you and said, okay, look. I know you're used to doing it this way, and it's we need to change it to do something else. Here's my vision of what it is. Now, I know we both talked about how they don't seem to have a vision. Yeah. They just are saying, the way you're doing it is wrong. And, you know, they, they, they haven't openly put, admitted. And, yeah. That we, not only are we telling you the way you're doing it is wrong, but we, we are openly admitting we don't know what the right way is. We just know yours is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how much of the frustration that you are feeling would go away if that conversation with your boss, your new manager, had taken place to say, look, here's the new plan. Here's the new thing that we're going forward in. Yeah. And... Let's get on board I, I would with say it in my here. case, you know, that, and I have told both my boss and his boss um, that my biggest frustration with them is that I have been involved at the strategic level of the company for five years now. And now they're asking me to go and just be a, a grunt at the, you know, in the trench. And that is the part that is causing me the greatest amount of frustration. So, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, I feel the same way in my situation uh, at work because I'm losing one of my good developers. Um, you know, designer, front-end developer, flash guy, video guy, d does it all. And I've told them, hey, look, we need to make sure we've got this in place. And I've been brushed aside. <laughs> Honestly. And so I walked out of one of their offices and I said, okay, fine, do whatever the hell you want because this is you're going to fall flat on your face because you refuse to listen to me yeah. on this. Ah, Joey, if we only ran the world. Uh, it, it's very interesting how the rangers are already mythical figures. You know, this one ranger walks into the, uh, what were they called, the Indiri or Infili? Infili? Yes. Um, and they're like, oh, the Rangers are here. We're all saved. He will save us. It's just, it's one guy. <laughs> yes. It seems like a pretty high bar. <laughs> it's just, you know, they've already taken on this mythical status, even just, you know, less than a year after the end of the Shadow War. They've yes. only been public knowledge for like a year. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the Rangers' uh, mythos has spread itself throughout the galaxy now that everybody's like, oh, they're 
We can always go to the Rangers for help. And they're this unstoppable force, and they're yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have the, <laughs> the signing of the Declaration. <laughs> they're, they're trying to get everyone on board with this, and everyone's having, can't agree to it. Oh, how dare you legislate morality. How, how dare you use the word commit. Instead, you must say, the universe, through us, agrees to. Huh. <laughs> oh. Once again, the drowsy are made the butt of the joke. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, let's see here. Garibaldi suggests, hey, you know what? Why don't we start using telepaths? They said they want to work for their keep. Let's, mm-hmm. let's call their bluff. Yeah. Uh, what, do you th- what do you say to that? Uh, which side am I on? Your Joey. Oh, okay. So I'm not a telepath. <laughs> no, you. Uh, how would you respond to that? I would respond absolutely. How can I help? So you're okay with getting telepaths to start gathering information? Yes. Which would mean actively sending them out to start scanning people instead of you know the whole psychor rules of nope. It, we block ourselves off. You know, that's that's sacred territory is somebody's mind. I think Now we're going to we, send them out. If we had telepaths today to use in prisoner interrogations, that the world would be a much better place. So you're saying that uh, while someone can declare, I plead the fifth, that we can just uh, go in and interrogate them with a telepath. You can't plead the fifth. If, you can't plead the fifth if you're a prisoner of war. Okay, so it is just for open conflict war. Yes. Okay. I wonder if there are rules about, um, you know, the Geneva Convention. If there are rules regarding, like, how far. Certain interrogations can go. There are, I mean, there are rules about what you can do in the process of interrogating them. I don't know of anything. I, I can't say I'm like, you know, I don't have the entire Geneva Convention, Convention rules memorized or anything. But I've never even heard of anything similar to the Fifth Amendment, kind of a you can't be forced to perjure yourself. Huh. Okay. To, to, not to perjure, yeah. but yeah. to uh, okay. give evidence against yourself. Um. Okay, so Garibaldi goes and ta- talks to him, to Byron, and Byron's just rude. Yeah. Just like, no, you're a mundane. I don't well, want to talk to you. And just... I, I, I agree with you, but I think, I think what Straczynski was trying to go for here is Byron and his people are paying back the Babylon 5 staff a little bit for the way they've treated Lita. I think that's what we're supposed to get out of that. I don't know how they would know about that. Yeah. But the fact that when we see the later interaction with Lita, and that they're willing to do it when Lita asks them, and the later interactions we see with Byron over the course of the series, the only thing that makes sense here, as I tried to make it all fit it all into a, a consistent mental framework, is that somehow Byron knows what they did to Lita and is now punishing them for it. He's like, you know what? Screw you guys. The minute, the minute we're no longer useful to you, you turn your backs on us the way you did on Lita. No, we're not going to help. Hmm. Yeah, I. Yeah, you already stated it. I, I'm. 
is nothing explicitly stated in there that no. that's what yeah. it is. It, it is a little weird. I agree. Um, um, Garibaldi goes to Lita, says, hey, I've got a job for you. And she's like, well, hello to you, Mr. Garibaldi. How are you doing there? Something stupid like that. Why, why is that not an acceptable social greeting? Hey, I've got a job for you. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? I don't think there is, but clearly to Lita, <laughs> she does not feel as though there is a real friendship there. So? There's a, a potential employee-employer relationship there. Isn't that enough? Well, clearly not for Lita, because <laughs> she is desperately craving to have some sort of interpersonal relationship. And we've clearly dropped the whole Zach thing. Like, he stopped coming around to bring pizza and hang out with her. Uh, and I, I kind of I kind of get that, you know, she's upset about it. Okay. I do. All right. Um, okay. So we have this white star show up. And it's the one that the ranger ship uh or that had carried that ranger to infili the infili planet and it had been shot up and it was near exploding and they they managed to get out there and and get that ranger off so there's a couple of things that happen lita scans the ranger and we see the ranger die yes and he walks through a doorway into the light <laughs> so here's what i know stupid here's what i wrote down Apparently when you die, you discover you've been in an episode of Quantum Leap the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny, dude. That's pretty funny. Okay, so... Uh, Alright, we'll, we'll just skip past the stupidity of, okay. of that scene. Alright, so we're scanning the, this ranger. And everybody's like, oh, this poor ranger, he's going to die. Was there nobody else on that White Star? <laughs> Was it just the ranger? That was there driving it the whole time? Well, he's the only one that got critically wounded. <laughs> okay. Minbari are tougher. <laughs> Once I again, I, I see that, you know, we are supposed to look at the humans as really, really important. And Minbari are, now ah, they're not important. It may have been a ship completely staffed by human rangers. We don't know. <sighs> it's the religious cast that staffed. The ship, though. They weren't rangers. It's the religious cast that staffed White Star 1. Well, what were all of those other uh, Mimbari doing on all of those other White Stars then? They were rangers. They were not rangers. <laughs> <sighs> okay, next problem. Is there no sensor information aboard that White Star? About who attacked it and stuff? About who attacked it. That's a good point. I didn't think of that one. Like, cause I, I had the same problem you did. To be fair, with the wait, only one guy came out of that critically wounded. That's kind of odd. But I didn't even think about the. Why don't we just check the sensor bays? <laughs> yeah, it could, it, the ship didn't explode. Yeah, we should have some kind of black box. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, oh, okay, okay what, whatever. Um, so we have this this moral conundrum. Should we go and help the Infili? And I don't understand why everyone is sitting around wringing their hands, you know, over whether or not we send help to someone who's asking for help from raiders. I don't get why it's suddenly 
this like, oh, well, uh, I wonder if we should do this. So the, the biggest reason is because, as we talked about earlier, Sheridan is now in a state of mind where he is trying to teach them to shift their perception. You know, he's trying, what's the phrase I'm looking for? It's a Stephen Covey thing that, you know, you hear. Synergize? No. It's not a sea change. It's something slightly less than a sea change. Anyway, I can't remember the term. Uh, but he, he's trying to get them to change their mode of thinking. We don't solve problems with force. If I just send the rangers in, then I'm undoing all the work I've been doing over the past couple of weeks to talk about the talk to the potential members of the Interstellar Alliance about, we're not just going to solve things with force, guys. We're going to find other ways to do things. I understand. It's not a complete answer to what you're asking because they're okay. raiders. That's, you're not exactly going to go negotiate with raiders. That's, that's fine. So, I mean, do you agree with what Sheridan's doing then? No. With his, with his hand-wringing, you mean? Yeah, or even with the paradigm ship. Paradigm. That's the word I was looking for. Oh, huh. thank you. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I agree with the paradigm shift that he is trying to... Well, I should say... I admire the paradigm shift that he is trying to enact. I personally don't think it's very practical. Um, okay. I am I am a might makes right kind of guy. Well, cause that's I, that's what I was having trouble with because I definitely see this as oh he okay we're trying to turn the interstellar alliance into the UN yeah, which the UN hey let's talk about everything guys. Meanwhile, all of these horrible atrocities continue to go on. Agreed. I, I I don't I don't I don't see how it works. I don't believe it can work. But I admire the people who are still. So you do admire the United Nations? No, that's not what I said. I admire the people who are still innocent enough to believe that 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 that's possible. Good for them. Luckily, they have people like me who you know. I always go back to the. Uh, the the assassin who sit, sit in the dark and say, "I get to press the little red button." I always I always loved in the Serenity movie, the Firefly movie, um, the character. Don't of the give assassin. away too much. I'm not, uh, I'm not. Okay. The, the character of the assassin who says, "I walk with blood on my hands, so that the other people out there don't have to." And I thought, you know, that is. A role I have very much tried to fill in my own life. <laughs> you I have are tried one to sick. <laughs> I have sick tried man. to wash my hands in the blood. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, you know, Terrible. we talked earlier about the things that, in a previous podcast, about the things I try to shield my wife from ever even knowing that they happen. Because that's you know good for her that she can live in a world where that bubble is possible. For me, it's not possible, and so I'm out there fighting and and. Might makes right because somebody at the end of the day has to enforce the peace. Good for you that you can go live in, you know, utopia and believe in, you know, everything's candy and rainbows and puppy dogs. <laughs> but in my world, all the puppy dogs are dead. The rainbows are, are pollution streaking the sky and the candy is just making everyone obese. <laughs> <laughs> I would have also accepted giving them diabetes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, all right, so Garibaldi does get Lita to help. Um, Londo finishes his declaration. The, the constant no, changing. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, 
it, the constant changing of that was getting a little annoying for okay. me. Um, then Byron and Lita sort of square off. Yeah. It's a weird, very weird encounter all it, over. It was. I, I get the point that was trying to get across, which was, you know, stop re- responding to the command. You know, start to realize Break you're... the psychor conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Byron actually, he, he, he sounded like Magneto. Yeah. That's a good good corollary. Uh, because you know, in the, in the last movie, actually in the in the first um, X Men movie that they did, I really enjoyed the way Magneto was saying they are inferior to us. You know, we we are better than them. Yeah. And you know, we should be the ones who are leading and doing all of these things. And that's basically what Byron was saying to Lita: Stand up. You are one of the elite here now. Um, but Sheridan finally thanks Lita. Yes, the very end, Sheridan does thank Lita, and I appreciated that. And yeah. clearly, so does she. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, also it, we find out that the Drazi were the ones behind the attacks. Kind of in a weird way, though, they were paying someone else to go do the attacks. They, they were, were paying the raiders, but then they were planning to go and shoot off all of the White Stars. Yeah, they were. It was to a trap. Their secret. Yeah. And that was a really big fleet of Drazi. It was. That seemed weird. Like, they didn't show up with that big of a fleet before, but... Yeah, where were all those ships during Into the Fire? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. All right. I don't have anything I mean, it's the fact that they actually have the technology now to do that much CGI. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Listener comments? Yeah. Okay. Moneybag says, This is my favorite episode of The Bunch. Some good humor, good tension... Good action. There's not much bad to say about this episode. Of course, not much isn't the same thing as nothing. <laughs> Number one, Jakar's line, quote, go repress someone else, close quote. Haha, <laughs> get it? Because Zentari committed genocide against the Narn. <laughs> Groan. Jakar and Londo's relationship seems to have undergone a rapid change without nearly enough explanation. Last season, Jakar wouldn't even have a drink with the guy. And now they seem to act like an old married couple. And I'm not buying that Londo's apology after his coma was enough. 2. The scene with Lita and Byron and the chair. Again, why does Byron have to be so intense about everything? (laughs) He's just met Lita, and he's telling her how to live her life, insults her, and Lita just stands there and takes it. And even though Byron didn't want to work for the Alliance, he decides to do it because of some woman he just met. It doesn't make sense. 3. The scene with Garibaldi and the telepaths. Do these guys just lean against the wall all day? It's like they're all the same character. <laughs> it wasn't until he wrote that down that I realized, yeah, they do just kind of seem to be standing around. around in places. Like, how are they eating? <laughs> the, with their minds. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> my belly is full. Four. Why does Garibaldi want to use telepaths all of a sudden? His rationale would be good if not for the fact that on multiple occasions he stated he didn't trust telepaths. 
five. And lastly, this is a minor nitpick, but how exactly did the Enfili hide what the Raiders were looking for? I'm guessing they were being raided for natural resources. How exactly do you hide a natural resource? <laughs> wow. Five complaints about a good episode. Oh, well, it still gets a good rating. TV 7, Sci-Fi 7. Okay. Brandy Smurf. He says, I like Garibaldi as the box's minister of shadiness. <laughs> Perfect fit for him. Quote, I never met a fact I didn't like. Close quote. I also absolutely love the bit about being inside a mind when it dies. That is so creepy and interesting and a great sci-fi element. The box also implements awesome tactical command by swapping a trap with a trap. This is great sci-fi. The Drazi suck. Sci-Fi 10, TV wow. 8. Don't think I'll be able to watch the fourth one. Sorry, dudes. Rock on, Ambassador Brainy Smurf. Because we had misled him about what we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. This, these were still pretty good for Absolutely. their quick-wittedness. Uh, uh, it was pretty funny. <laughs> okay. Pete, science fiction reading. Um, it, what, uh, what Brainy Smurf says there articulates best about the s seeing inside of a mind when somebody dies. I have never heard about that within science fiction before. And that is what covers the majority of what goes on in this episode. To the point that I give this a 7. Wow. Uh, I give it a 6. I I was not as fascinated by that idea as you are. I, I don't think it was executed well. Because, like I said, okay, we've got a doorway and <laughs> walk through a bright light. It wasn't that part of it. It was the idea that you're talking to this person and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I guess this is it. I'm, you know, I'm done. I, that's interesting. Okay. Television, um, pretty much on the same level as the last episode for me, so I'm going to give it a six. Wow. Uh, the uncomfortable intensity of the telepaths really knocks this one down for me every interaction with the telepaths is just i don't even want to watch it and i'm a fan of babylon 5 <laughs> i give it a four i just they're they're just too over the top the p5 rating is 8.16 moving on to our next episode a view from the gallery a day in the life of a babylon 5 maintenance team <laughs> this is one of my favorite episodes yeah i it's enjoyable for me as well i i like this Bo and mac great characters i love how they're so painfully obviously used as the voice of the author <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed there are multiple occasions where he's like you know maybe that ivana lady maybe she just wanted a raise and went so <laughs> i noticed that and also the uh yeah, I always thought those things looked like plucked chickens. Yes, yeah. I wondered if you had catch that this time around. Um, but the probably the line or the piece of dialogue that I enjoyed the most between these two characters was right at the beginning when he's sweeping the thing over the floor. And he's like, you know, what do these do? The floor's not any cleaner. And like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it strengthens the whole... He's like, it's, isn't it bizarre that we're told to walk around with this thing and just... We have sweep it around. We have no idea what we're doing. I, I don't buy that at, in the slightest. <sighs> that, that scene bugged me. <laughs> because if you look at those guys, they're doing some pretty technical stuff. Yeah. It's not as though they're just going in there and they're like, you know, 
uh, unscrewing the uh, the cover over a uh, an electrical outlet and saying, "Oh, this wire is just unplugged." No, they're like doing some pretty intricate things. Yeah, and they're not going to understand what a piece of machinery does. Well, it's it's a piece of machinery that doesn't come in contact with anything except the floor. No, he doesn't actually touch the floor. He's hovering it over the floor. Well, when I saw it, it was resting, right? It was just standing on top of the floor. I just thought it was hilarious (laughs) because I know computer programmers who can make really awesome software, and yet you ask them implementation details about the inside of a computer, and they're like, I don't know, it just works. What? This thing has a CPU? (laughs) I, I mean, not maybe not to that extent of ridiculousness, but there are things that... In everybody's life that we just take as a given, somebody told us, oh, you're supposed to go do this, and, and we do it. Uh, it reminds me of the, the metaphor of the, or the story about the, the ham and cutting the end off the ham. Have you heard sure. that one? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. That's just the way we always did it. Why did we do it that way, Mom? Oh, I don't know. That's the way my mom did it. Why did we do it that way, Grandma? Well, it's because my pan was too short, and I couldn't fit the whole ham in the pan. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of, of observation on human nature, and I enjoyed it for that aspect. Now I love the characters. I I think that they, the actors who they got to do that did a great job of portraying what we would consider as quote unquote regular folk. Yeah, you know the guys who are just like they're menial. They you know it's not as though they're not important. It's just that they they're see, not the command staff. Yeah, they they aren't the brains of the operation. Now I've known. Lots of those people. You can't grow up in Stockton, California without (laughs) knowing those people. And I think that the actors kind of nailed really well the the attitudes that you have between your coworkers. It it, it definitely, it was a, a good, good set of acting between them. Um, so we have, uh, apparently this new race is coming down to attack Babylon 5. Who knows who they are? We don't know. I don't think we're ever going to find out. No. Um, but they're like, oh, what are we going to do with the president? And we need to get him sent off safe. And it's like, why don't they just put him on board and just ship him down to the planet? <laughs> okay. I don't know. I didn't thing. understand why they, they were just wringing their hands all That's over all point. of this stuff. Um, let's see here. The, uh, oh, you gotta scramble the codes. If they download our codes when the main fleet gets here, they're gonna be able to. I'm like, (laughs) who let him write that? Wasn't there anyone checking this stuff for technical accuracy? Uh, Sorry, guys, computers don't work that way. It's just, there's no way you have a wireless connection open (laughs) to your command and control center. Yeah. Oh, okay. Alright. I, I agree. I about tore out hair on that one. <laughs> one of the v- good scenes from Franklin that I like is in this okay. episode. When he's talking to Mac? Yeah, where they say, hey, why why not let the bad guy die? You know what? And he tells the story about how some enemy kept his father alive. At the cost of his own life. Yes. and it, And the answer becomes, well, because life is sacred. Yes, these people may be your enemy, and when you're fighting against them, fine. But my job isn't to fight. My job is to save lives. And life is sacred, and you should treat it that way. I thought that Franklin 
number one, the, the actor did a good job there. It was written well, and the the whole scene came across good. Yeah, which I can't. I rarely ever said that with Franklin about yeah. Franklin. Yeah. Um, I don't understand why they dive out of the elevator during the breaching scene. They're in the elevator. There's cover there. Just get the doors closed again. Why did they dive out? Yeah, that did seem a little bit weird, but maybe it was... I, I don't know. I won't even re- register a guess. Um, the maintenance people did seem unconcerned. as you know, They knew that there was this fleet coming in, but it was still just sort of this like, Hey, Mac, how's it going? Yeah, oh, I'm working on this thing now. Oh, I guess we better get over to the hull and start helping. You know, don't you think after it. five years of living on Babylon 5, you'd kind of get... No. Okay. No. The sense of, oh crap, I could potentially die right now. I That I don't believe is ever going to go away from me. And I don't think it should. I, I know it goes away for soldiers in combat. That they It's actually like a big concern for soldiers in combat that if they're in a combat scenario for too long, then they will start to become desensitized to Complacent. the risk of the situation. Yeah. And... And, and as a result, then they enter themselves into situations where they're in too deep and they can't get out. So I, I know that that's a real thing, a real condition that happens to human beings. Um, I, I don't think it's that far of a stretch to imagine that these maintenance guys are to the point where, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, well, the world might end again today. What are you going to do? <laughs> get up and get, do your job. That's what you do. Occupy your job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have invaders coming on board. They've got these breaching ships. Um, they bust away in, and we, we, you know, we've got to, you know, so to, you know, so to speak, hand to hand combat. Mm-hmm. Eventually, one of the dumb scenes I have is they have a security guy inside Babylon Five who's fighting one of these guys. He punches him in the helmet. <laughs> that has got to be the dumbest thing in the world to ever do. Was that a helmet or was it a head? A helmet. Was it a helmet? It was plastic, dude. Maybe they just grow plastic heads. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was okay. frustrating. Okay. okay, fine. If it's their head, okay, whatever. But still, punching a plastic head has got to be the dumbest thing you could possibly do. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you know it, what? Uh, what I always find interesting is they always have skirmishes at uh, in football games of some sort or another, and you always got one guy who takes his helmet off. That has got to be the dumbest thing that you could ever do: <laughs> is take off your helmet. Well, it's the guys who take it off and swing it as a weapon. <laughs> That's pretty effective, I think. Yes, but then they have no protection to their head. So you take someone else's helmet off and swing it as a weapon. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> you know, it's better than punching a helmet with your hand. Nah. Okay, so we have a scene where the telepaths can protect themselves. Yes. And they protect Bo and Mac, which is interesting that they they all link up and they can project their thoughts up to say, oh, there's this wall here. Yeah, you it, can't see it's this. It's like we saw Talia and uh-huh. the, the other telepaths do with Bester. Which makes me think, okay, these guys clearly must be pretty strong yeah. telepaths. These aren't just run-of-the-mill like, oh, I feel you're sad. You know, <laughs> this is... <laughs> was that a P1? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it was P1. Um... 
You know, Londo and Jakari have this conversation where Londo asserts, I was never a child. I had duties from the time I was young, responsibilities that I had to live up to. And Jakari responds, you know, that, that maybe that's part of your problem, Londo, is I had the opportunity at some point in life to come out of the shelter that I grew up in and come out into the sunlight. And you carry your shelter with you everywhere mm-hmm. you go. Yeah. I, I've always really loved that scene because I feel like in my life, I did not really have an opportunity to be a child. From a very young age, I had to act like an adult. And I had to face problems that adults to this day, I know, adults who can't <laughs> handle them well. <laughs> yeah. And, and I had to deal with them and I had to be mature about them. And I know for a fact that part of what makes me as screwed up as I am is a result of the you know the fact that I had to face some of that stuff as a six year old kid. I know it messed me up. I can point to the parts of my brain right there. <laughs> you know, emotionally, I can point to the scars to this day that says, "Yeah, if I had had a chance as a kid to maybe play a little bit and have fun and and live maybe a little bit more of a childhood, okay. Okay. I would be a more well adjusted person." Today. Good, good point. Excellent point. Would you trade it to have the, you know, quote-unquote no. normal childhood? No. I wouldn't. Because I I would not be who I am. And I'm, I'm okay with who okay. I am. Okay. Follow-up question then. Would you recommend that people have your life? No. Even though you claim that, while not explicitly stated... You, you're better off having had the life that you had, the childhood that you have. You are a better, stronger, mm, nah, I was about to say more well-adjusted. <laughs> nope, no, that's no, not right. Not that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that you are more prepared to deal with the ills of life because of that upbringing. What I, what I would the, the response I, I want to give you is is I know myself and I have done enough self introspection to say that is what it would have taken for me to get where I am. I would hope that other people are not as dense as I am that they are not as that they don't have as much trouble learning some of these lessons as I had but because of who I am, that's what it took to get me where I am. Do you think that you would be like the Bo and Mac were it not for your childhood? I think I'd probably be more like Aaron. No no offense to Aaron. Right? I mean, he is my brother, and as much as I tease him, I do love him. But he is adrift in his own life. And I think part of that is because, I, I, I honestly believe, I'm partially to blame for that because my brother and I sheltered him from the realities of what were going on in our in our lives at the time and he never learned how to deal with those and i can say i there's a strong uh, emotional weakness in my family that you're going to hit a certain point in your life and that that moment is either going to break you or it's going to make you into a, a, a an emotionally strong person and i was prepared for that at a younger age because i had to face smaller versions of it every day and Mm -hmm. and then they got bigger and they got bigger and they got bigger and so it became a climb up up the side of a mountain instead of a fall off a cliff 
So you wouldn't, though, say, look, it's better to have gone through the hell that I went through as a child. It's better for me, but I, I would hope that no one else is as fundamentally flawed of a person as I know I am, that that's what it took to get me here. Hopefully, all of you can do it in a much easier way. The School of Hard Knocks is the only way I was going to get here. I hope that's not true for everybody. And for anyone it's not true for, the School of Hard Knocks is nothing but pain. You could have gotten, if you could have gotten there easier. By, by virtue of its title. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, if you, if you don't need it, I hope you never have to go through it. For those people who need it, yes, it could be beneficial if they, if they learn how to absorb it and, and take the hits and keep rolling. Yeah. There, that, that, well, it's true. There, there was no ice cream and brownies being served in the school of hard knocks. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. Um, because I, I would consider my life to be perfection. <laughs> okay. Now that that sounds a little weird, <laughs> but the way a that little arrogant maybe. <laughs> the way that I was brought up, I know it was that I was brought up in, uh, well, quite honestly, uh, an atmosphere of privilege. We had everything we ever needed in in my life. Not everything I wanted, but everything I needed. We had to work hard, you know, grew up on a farm, but had loving parents, mom who made breakfast for me most of the time, um, you know, a, a family atmosphere that while, yeah, t torturous at points, a family that seemed to care about each other. And I grew up with an opportunity to see so many different other types of lives, lifestyles that I realized, Oh, okay. I've I, got it pretty good here. I've got it pretty good. I know to stay away from this kind of thing, to stay away from this right here. And I believe I grew up pretty well adjusted. I think between the two between of us. Between the two of us, clearly. Clearly. You're the same one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I think at many times you and I have both said, mm, Joey, your your view of reality <laughs> there is slightly skewed. Uh, but uh, I, I, I cannot deny that the childhood, the lifestyle that you went through is incredibly useful. I learned some things from it. Yes. Things that you, people don't learn in, in, in other childhood and other lifestyles and, and whatever. It, it's information that just never comes to you. And I think those are important things to learn, but do you learn them at a cost? Absolutely. Well, like I said, I, I Cle clearly, them. yes. Yes. I would hope that there are people that can learn them without the cost being quite so high. It, it, it's just, it, I, I take this to a simple example. Bodybuilders, you know, they put their bodies through immense amounts of strain and struggle and difficulty to bulk themselves up. And I think, okay, they only get that way through one action. And that's constantly pushing and struggling against harder and harder things to grow those muscles and become, you know, bigger. 
I wonder if in life we we cannot learn certain things without going through the really painful, difficult things in life. You might be right. You might be right. But there are certainly, even within the group of bodybuilders, there are people for whom it's easier to put on the bulk than for other people. Oh, yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah. So there, there are there are yeah, phys- shades physiologically, of, yeah, it, it's easier for for people. There, sure. there are shades of difficulty. I'd say that for certain aspects of of life, of childhood and and home life, that I'm at an extreme end. I'm not everything. I obviously I didn't grow up under a bridge, you know, selling my body to to eat or anything quite that bad. Right. But for certain things, you know, like your your relationship with your father. I'd say I probably grew up on a fairly dark extreme of that of that emotional spectrum. Yeah. That taught me certain things. I think there are I, I know there are people who have learned the same lesson without having to go quite as dark as I had to go through to learn it. And I've and I like I said, I've, I've done the self-introspection. I've looked back on my life, I've compared who I am emotionally and mentally and said do I think I could have gotten here without that? I don't I don't believe I could have. I have a really bad temper that I learned to control at a young age because I saw, oh my gosh, this is what I'm going to become if I don't learn to control my temper. And I think that if I had not had that lesson, I would probably be a much angrier and easier, you know, easier to set off person than I am now. You know, I that's that's one of yes, those things. Yes, I've I, always felt that your restraint, as I pull all of those horrible, horrible jokes on you, <laughs> time after time on this podcast, you show a, re- a remarkable amount of restraint. It, it's just you know, and and I and I know now about myself because I can look at, you know, inside myself, and I can see the emotional spectrum. And I can go, huh? The, I I know where I went from being calm to being angry and I know that beyond that point of angry there's this barrier that I built that I learned to control what happens in that range from angry to out of control and doing something about it I just assumed past that barrier was was blacked out rage <laughs> I have no idea what just happened <laughs> why is there blood and body parts strewn about this room what has happened here uh, <laughs> an example that I can think of where I crossed that threshold was, you know, uh, a while back when we were all working together and, and I worked with one of our friends and, and I feel like he personally betrayed me yeah. and it made me very angry. And I walked into a room several months later and I thought he was in that room and I went into the bathroom and threw up in the toilet because I was so angry. I mean, I was shaking and I had to go get myself under control because I knew I had gone way past that line of self-control. I had to get myself out of the situation. And that line was, you know, as a young child, that line was much further back. <laughs> and it was way easier to cross. Yeah, I guess I was getting, you know, we, we've mentally walked through all of these logic uh, uh, exercises to the point that I, I guess I have to announce that you're the most well-adjusted of all of us <laughs> associated with this podcast here uh um, no, that, 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 that can't be right. <laughs> Clearly we, we missed something somewhere. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I love that they take their break watching the space battle. 
Like, they're looking out that porthole. That, just... that was, for me, what turned, like, the whole, like, really? You can just be that complacent about everything, this? Oh, I loved that. I was like, can you imagine just being in the point of, eh, well, like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. We'll sit here and enjoy the light show. <laughs> um, you know what's one interesting thing? When they were talking about the that battle, one thing we've never seemed to have brought up in Babylon 5 is and even in I don't think even in Star Trek the next generation maybe they did it in DS9 but this idea of friendly fire hmm. you know that in the heat of battle sometimes things go wrong and you end up shooting at your own men it, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's an absolutely real thing happens that's why they you know the, this term friendly fire it would have been interesting if maybe Straczynski or, or somebody within the TNG universe would have talked about the repercussions of that in the science fiction world. Yeah. You know, how that, you know, how people would be affected in, in a different world. That would be interesting. Um, okay. Um, let's see here. Oh, uh, we have Bo and Mac basically saying, oh, wow, you know, we've got these, you know, we're different from, they're recognizing in themselves, hey, look, we're not command staff. We're, we're the fixers. We, we take care of things. And we sort of come towards the end that both both sides of those people have their ups and downs. Yeah. They're, you know, great, great benefit, you know, with being a starfighter pilot. But huge then again, cost. Yeah. huge cost because, you know, look at all the bodies strewn about inside the, the sick bay. Um, you know, the president, everybody recognizes him and, you know, goes out of their way to treat him with great respect and whatever. But, you know, think about the, the assassination attempt. <laughs> yeah, think about the life that that guy's got to have. Um, anyway, I, I, that's all I really have to, to mention about this episode. Uh, I just, the only other thing I wanted to say is I think it's awesome that Delenn remembers their names. Yeah. That is, you know, I've had that experience where people that I considered kind of a hero, you know, bump into them one time. And they get your name, and then you meet them months later down the road. And they're like, "Hey, Joey, how's it going?" And you're just like, oh, "You remember my name?" <laughs> I, I've had that, and it's it's a huge, huge, huge experience. It, it it really is. It does mean something to you when that happens. Yeah. it is nice. The idea that you made it at least a little tiny impact in their life. Yeah. Listen to comments. Okay. Um, Moneybag says, "A good action episode. What this episode." did not need was two janitors talking about how awesome all the main characters are. <laughs> I would have given this a 7-7 rating if it weren't for them. TV6, Sci-Fi 6. Hmm. It's a shame. I, yeah. I think he's really missing out on that. Uh, Joey, science fiction. Uh, for science fiction with the telepaths... With the attack on this on the station that's going on, I'm going to give it a seven. Uh, you know, I I'm going to give this an eight. Okay. I, I enjoyed the the whole different view of all of this other, you know, the crap is is falling yeah. down around us, and you know, here's this view from some other side. Yeah. That that's interesting to me, and I think it's a good story, and I think it was fairly done well. Television. For television, I give this one a nine. This is, oh. I think this is highly entertaining. Even if you don't know Babylon Five, you can get into these two characters right away. 
because they are written as they're one-shot characters. We, yeah. We're supposed to know them. And like you said, they're captured so well of, of tropes that we all know. Uh-huh. Anybody could sit down and watch this episode and go, hey, that was kind of fun. I'm mm. giving it a nine. I'm going to give it a seven. I, I don't think that uh, I can look past some of the other things that I had mentioned on here. But I really, really enjoyed the episode it is one of the fun favorite ones it's the one one of the ones i remember um so i'm it's good the p5 rating is 7.87 well that brings us to the end of another episode of the home starmy presents trek west 5 we hope that you've learned something had some laughs and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5 or call and leave us a voicemail at 801 788-4913. So until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening.